0: Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Before we start, I'd like to say a special thank you for some friends we have out there. They know who they are. We appreciate what you do. And uh, so, Tom, would you like to kick this off?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've got a very special show today. We've got Forrest and we've got Chuck. And Forrest is our resident anthropologist. Chuck is one of our past guests. And both of them had an encounter on the same day, separated by about 20 minutes, and separated geographically by uh, quite a distance. But before we get going, Uh, I just want to say thank you for everybody for tuning in. And if you like the show, tell us, let us know. Uh, Click the like button. If you haven't subscribed, it's a great time. Click the subscribe button. And if you want to support the show, you can do so through Patreon. And we always include a link in the description. All right. So I'm going to kick this off with Forrest. Tell us what was going on. You had something happening when you were talking to Chuck. What's fill us in?
4: Well, quite often Chuck and I talk at night. He works overnight. And um, uh, I was, uh, we like to converse at night because he has to do a lot of driving and stuff like that. So uh, we were, chatting away and uh he had to go um check a a a pump and he got out of his truck and um now i did not hear this but um i know that when he got back in the truck he sounded quite anxious to me i'm not going to use the word frightened but he did sound anxious i could tell i could tell by the difference in his um, tone of voice that uh, he was was kind of upset about something. And that's when he told me, he said, I just heard three sharp whistles. And he said, the hair on my neck came up. And that was exactly what he said. The hair on my neck just came up. And Um, Now, I don't know his normal procedures, but I think, uh, you know, I I hear him quite often. He's uh, inputting uh, numbers and figures into the computer that they uh, have to uh, enter this information into. And uh, because they take readings, from what I understand, off these pumps, and he can certainly explain that far better than I can. Uh, But um, anyway he just was like, I'm not staying here, I just don't feel comfortable. Um, I, I, I just, just, he was, he was obviously feeling very awkward and did not feel comfortable being there. So he, uh, was going to go down to the, I think he said the flying J and, um, uh, get, get something, uh, to eat and drink and calm down, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, that's exactly what he did. And, uh, he also had told me on on the way down there that uh, well somewhere in the interim and I don't ex- exactly remember whether he was uh, he, whether he was still on the the site or whether he was driving down the road. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't exactly remember uh, when that occurred. But he told me he said, well, I've got to, I just received a call from my my boss, so I've got to I got to call him back. And I said, okay, that's fine. I said, well, if you want to just just call me back, you know. And um, so. We hung up, and uh, I'm just sitting here watching TV. no problems. Uh, happy as a clam and uh, a few minutes later, and I don't know exactly how long later, but it wasn't too much, he calls me back, and he goes through and explains to me what he uh, what had uh, transpired, and uh, he's he's telling me all this, and <laughs> um I had two of my cats sitting in the window and the window was open. It, it's been a cool at night here. So I've been leaving the windows open and I had two of my cats sitting in the window and all of a sudden one of them, she arches her back. They're both looking to the East uh, out the window. And I could, I kind of was kind of watching them a little bit because they, I could tell they were looking at something and one of them stands up. She arches her back. And I mean, she hissed. And she bounded over to the bed. And I was sitting in my chair on the other side of the bed. And, oh, the bed's about five feet from the window. And she bounced onto the bed and then turned around and was looking out the window. Well, the other cat, in the meantime, had also stood up and was starting to, you know, you would see the hackles coming up on, uh, his back and he's looking and he actually stayed in the window just a few seconds longer and then it was a huge hiss came out of him and he went out and i had another cat actually sitting there's a stool that's right next to the uh the window and uh tig was sitting on that and she she saw them and i don't know whether she ever heard what happened at the window or whether she just rea- her reaction was precipitated by the other two cats but she bailed off of that stool and actually she knocked it over well um all this time chuck's still talking to me and i'm like kind of curious and that that's when i heard it the 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 growl it, the the there was actually a growl, and i'm like <laughs> this the and this was kind of funny. I'm like, hush, Chuck. I'm trying to be quiet about it. Hush, Chuck. Hush. Because I wasn't really sure at first what I'd heard. And I finally, and Chuck's just talking away. And I finally, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's laughing because I finally went, hush, Chuck. <laughs> and he got, and he was like, huh? <laughs> but he got quiet. And that's when I, I just, I heard the end of that 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 low rumbling growl and I'm telling you what it it scared the bejesus out of me and it was right there at the window and no I did not get up and go look out the window um you know that was something my daughter well why don't you go over and look out the window I said you know what sweetie all I have is me between me and whatever was out there was a screen and I was not going there Uh Uh-uh, not at all and I guess what was it twenty minutes later, Chuck, that I that I I heard the exact same thing. The cats never went back over to the window. Uh, it it was just it was really a bizarre, bizarre night. And for that to have happened after what he heard, <laughs> I don't know how many miles you're what, about six hundred miles away oh. from P.
5: Yeah, probably <laughs> probably at least yeah. that.
4: Yeah, and for us to have two situations occurring almost simultaneously, I was just like, but when the next one came, <clears throat> uh, to be honest with you, that that almost sounded like it was on the other side of the window, and, and of course, At that point in time, I keep a 357 in the pocket of my um, um, chair. I picked the 357 because I told Chuck, I said, you know, I just told him, I said, I heard it again. And it was actually louder this time. It was very distinct. I mean, it was very low. Um, It it sounded sinister. It really did. And uh, all I could sit here and think was, okay, I'm in the house, but do... I do have a couple uh, four cats that stay that they're fairly feral, but they do stay under the house. And all I was thinking was, oh, my gosh, I hope they're under the house and they're safe. And um, I pulled that 357 and. Um, and I sat with it. Well, for the duration of our conversation, I sat there and I think Chuck and I, we, we talked for a good while after that, because I think Chuck was kind of uncomfortable to let me go. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm telling you what, I, I was scared. I was scared. And, um, I mean, I don't think it could have, well, I guess it could have, if it wanted to, could have come through the window, but, um, I, I, I never had any more problems now. I actually went out the next morning. I got up early as soon as the sun was up, and I went out but to see if maybe there was prints. Uh, This uh, mobile home sits up on a, um, they built it up on a um,
5: uh,
4: mound, and it's made out of granite gravel. So it's not real conducive for making tracks, but I thought, just maybe, just maybe. And I went out there, and it had rained of all things overnight. And there was nothing out there. And that really kind of aggravated me because I was really kind of hoping that maybe I could get uh, a print or something, but um, you know, just to step back here. And, and I, I told uh, Tom about this. What was it last week that I had noticed something because, and because I'd had this spinal surgery, I, I get out and walk up and down my driveway, but I don't get out and do as much around here right now as I have been doing. And over there where we had taken that dog kennel down, Tom, remember I told you about this because I'd been telling you, Oh no, I hadn't had any problems out here. There was no, there hadn't been any issues or anything like that. And, um, I was going to, uh, go over there and look at those cedar trees that were in the, uh, kennel. And, They were quite heavy over there. And now this is the kennel that's in front of where the figure eight is on the other side of the fence. And I, I was looking at, I was putting some cats up and I I was looking at this tree and I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't look right. And um, I walked on over there because like I said, I'd been thinking about going in there and, I wanted to trim all those trees up so that they were all you could just walk in their head uh, head height and not uh, get knocked in the head by a low limb or something. And this one tree that I had been thinking about trimming up, the lower <laughs> lower limbs that I was thinking about trimming were gone, and the whole top of the tree, the limbs were just like bent over and twisted. And in fact, they were twisted in such a fashion that they were actually, uh, several of them were actually dying on the ends. So they had to have been that way. I'm going to say maybe three or four weeks, maybe. But you know what the, the peculiarity about the whole thing was that it appeared that something had almost, it looked like something had been laying in these cedars. I mean, it looked like something had just made a bed up there and was, laying across them or something i mean and I, that i'm not saying that that's exactly what happened but that's that's what it appeared to have been because they were all bent down and i mean i could if i had been able i could have crawled up there and just sat down on top of them because that's exactly the way they they are they're just like all bent down and twisted and and this whole top of this cedar that used to not be that way is it's just you know been a very peculiar fashion now so um i really don't i didn't know what to make of that and i told tom about it and i've since i had told chuck about it too and i just uh and i just wonder if something had been making a bed up there and and just watching what was going on around here around the trailer and uh i had just not ever noticed it until that point in time when i walked out there and took a good look at them
3: well, and you and that are getting a lot of awkward. yeah. Well, and you are getting uh Forrest, you're getting a lot of activity out there. You're you what was it a a month or less than a month ago? Something had untied the baling twine to get inside your barn, gets in the what? barn, and then unties one of the feed bags to get feed. And last I checked, horses still have hooves, right? Mm-mm,
4: mm mm-mm
3: right they don't do that
4: right they They can't do it with their lips no well these strings on those things are hard enough for for us to get open you know Uh, oh they are yeah yeah and uh chuck's worked in feed stores before he knows what what i'm talking about you know the pull the drawstrings on the, the feed and uh it's they're not the easiest things to to pull apart sometimes and uh get them to come out right. But uh, yeah, we've since put chains and locks on the uh, doors of the uh, barn. And believe it or not, we have not had any problems since then. So everybody has been religiously opening and uh, then relocking them.
3: Forrest, real quick, just to not everybody heard this story that happened about a month ago. Because I think it's part of this, this ongoing pattern of activity that you're having, but you had something come out there and go through a trash bag oh, and bag line up everything.
4: Yeah. Real quick, tell us what happened. Okay. And I think that was um and I can't I, I honestly can't remember if that was before or after the uh the incident in the barn but uh yeah i came out one morning to to uh i put my cats up they have their own little building with their little heater and air conditioner in there and everything and i go out every morning and let them out and i went out there about seven thirty to let the cats out and uh open it up and i came back around uh i didn't notice it the first time when i walked past it um i have normally i take my i i'm a fanatic about recycling. And so I separate all my plastic out and put it in plastic bags and garbage bags, you know, the the big black garbage bags, uh, hefty bags. And um, then we take them into Austin because that's the only place that uh, will take uh, the plastic recycling around here. And so unfortunately, because Uh, I haven't been driving a whole lot and my truck is a manual and it's actually really painful, painful for me to drive it. So I haven't had the opportunity. So I'm getting quite a collection here. I've probably got about 20 bags out there that need to go to the recycling place in Austin. And um, so I had had a bag that uh, was sitting on the end and I usually, the one on the end is left. I leave the top open and not, open open but untied and I will just pull it up you know tied at the top but not tie it and then when I have stuff usually I will uh, add to it so I, uh, through the day if I have a water bottle or something like that that needs to go in there then I'll stick it in there during the day or a- usually in the evening when I go to put the cats up that's when I'll put all the stuff in there well I'm going out this morning uh, like about 7:30. And I didn't notice it, like I said, when I first walked by. But when I'm coming back by to go back in the house, I happened to look down at this bag, and I thought, "Well, that's just odd." And the bag had been opened up, and here there was five or six items lined up: water bottles, and uh, there were some bowls and plastic bowls and such all in a line right in front of the bag and now there weren't any bottles thrown i mean it wasn't like a raccoon got in there or a possum which you'd have them all over the place uh you know and yet they'd have been just jumbled through and uh and i usually wash these things too before i put them in there so uh and i i have never ever had an issue with a, a small uh rodent getting into them and um None of the bags were torn open. This was just opened up at the top. And here were these water bottles and bowls all lined up. And like I say, uh, I think there were six of them. And what I wish now, I wished I had taken a picture. It just, it was just like, you know, I, I told you later, you know, why didn't I think to run in the house, get the phone, and come back out and take a picture? Because at the point, that point in time, I guess it just didn't register on me what, had done it and uh there was it the ground out there is really hard and like I say it's all this uh, granite gravel there were no tracks or anything like that and um it was just so peculiar they were lined up in a perfect little line right there in front of the bag and the bag was laid was opened up and just kind of laid back you know, exposing the plastic inside, and it was looked like they had selectively just picked out, you know, uh, pieces of plastic that I guess they thought <laughs> looked nice. I don't know. It wasn't arranged in any particular order, like the large ones on one end and going down to the uh, smallest ones. It was just like set, you know, set in a, in a line. And I just thought, you know, okay, okay, <laughs> and I put it all back in there and uh pulled the bag you know shut again and and believe it or not i have never had that happen again
2: you know that happened to jerry klein when we interviewed him almost exactly the same kind of thing so and the same thing it wasn't any uh rhyme or reason to it it was it was in kind of a pattern but well pattern it was laid out in a line is what it was but uh tom didn't he say there was some kind of a pattern too i can't remember
3: yeah I'd have to go back and and double check, but um, you know, I just think it's important that this is, we're seeing something, a kind of a repeating behavior that, you know, one was in Ohio, this one's in Texas and I think there's been a couple of other places where people have seen this I have no idea what they're up to, but uh, it's interesting
2: Yeah, I've, I've heard of it for a couple different witnesses too, so yeah, it's it's an unknown. It's a marking of some kind.
4: Well, obviously, it means something to them. I guess we're the stupid ones. We just we're not grasping what's the the true concept of what they're trying to get across.
2: We get, uh, you know we didn't get, the get memo. didn't get the
4: memo.
0: Yeah, we didn't get the memo. Yeah. Well, so, I got
5: yeah, it. <laughs> Go ahead, Forrest.
4: No, that's okay. Uh, I was just going to say, I just like I said, I'm still scratching my head on that one.
5: <laughs> I got a pretty interesting story about that. If you guys would like to hear it,
3: yeah, go ahead. Yeah, fill us in um, on the story, and then we would like to hear the other side of the phone conversation. What was going on with you? Okay. When when you're talking to Forrest. yes.
5: Okay. Um, I, I came into contact with a lady who has them on her property and she invited me out and, uh, I went out and she had casted some tracks and, um, this lady lives by one of the rivers here and they've lived there for quite some time. And, um, she told me that she, she, uh, she didn't want them harmed she says they've been living around here for 40 years now, and they've never really bothered us. And uh, over a period of time, she uh, she had a gifting bench that she set out away from the house, and she wouldn't she wouldn't put food or anything like that out there, but she would put like seashells or pretty rocks or just something of that nature to see if they would be interested. And sure enough, they began to leave her gifts as well. And one particular time, she found a piece of pyrite, fool's gold. And uh, it was a pretty nice chunk of pyrite. And she set it on the bench. Well, she goes back out there the next week, and the pyrite's gone. And so... A week goes by and she goes back out there and on this gifting bench is a gold watch. And she picked up the watch, took it inside, uh, got on the internet and found out that the date on the watch when it was actually made was I believe it was like 1958. And where where this watch came from she has no idea
3: well my question is who did
5: they eat to get the watch just just saying (laughs) right right well she goes back she goes back another week later and there's a there there's a piece of crystal sitting there that has gold flakes in it and we looked that up to see if there's any place in the state of oklahoma that has crystal that has gold flakes in it there's no place in oklahoma that has that the closest state to us that has crystal rocks that that have gold flakes in it is in arkansas so it kind of makes you wonder where'd they get this from where'd they get this stuff from and you know
3: um, next time you talk to her tell her to put a little tiny nugget of real gold out there and see if they come back with a big chunk of it
5: <laughs> well i you know i kind of figured i was going to try that myself and not give her that secret
3: <laughs> there you go absolutely <laughs> pay off some bills
5: but back to uh back to the story about the other night um i work in the oil field and i work nights and um uh, This one particular area, um, is not far from a place probably four or five miles, maybe at the most, uh, that has had multiple sightings, uh, including a young boy who went to, uh, this, this place and they have cabins there and people go out there and they camp out and, um, this one one young boy decided he was gonna sleep outside. And he wakes up about two o'clock in the morning and he and standing over the top of him is is a Bigfoot. And of course the kid panics big time. And uh the, the counselors at the at, at this camp grabbed a hold of the kid and pulled him inside and wouldn't let anybody talk to him and and tried to calm him down. And, uh, I got firsthand information about that event, but this place that I go to is only four or five miles from there. And I, uh, I, I got there and I, when I first started working there, I, I knew that these sightings were just down the road. And I knew that there was a possibility that, Sooner or later, I might run into one or see one in that area. Um, but so far, I haven't. Well, this particular night, it was kind of kind of a, it was dark that night. I mean, real dark. And uh, what I have to do is we have oil tanks and water tanks that we take care of. And my job is to go, go by this place and all the other locations that I go by I have to go by there four times a, a night. And I was on my second round, uh, of going by there and I get out of the Like, like Forrest said, I was talking to her on the phone the whole time and I get out of the truck and I'm, I'm getting my numbers and writing my numbers down like I normally do and I go to the far end of, of this location because that's where the, the pump's at. And um, almost instantly, when I walked over there, I hear three whistles. And I uh, they were all in a succession, just one after another. Uh, and it just, every, you know, like she said, the hair on my neck stood up, the hair on my arms stood up. And I thought, I've felt this before. I know what this is about. And, um, I, and I was a little shook up because I'm, I'm out there all by myself and it's pitch black dark and I carry a spotlight with me. And I, I sometimes spotlight around just to make sure everything is okay with the location that I'm at. Look for, uh, spills and leaks and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm fairly capable of looking around and and seeing anything, but I didn't see anything that night. Um, but I I got back in the pickup and, and I, I just, I made up my mind. I'm not going to sit here and spend all this time putting numbers in this tablet that we use. Um, because of what I've heard and how I'm feeling. So uh, I got back on the phone with her and told her, I said, I I think I'm just going to go on drive down the road a ways before I do this, because I, I I think it's time for me to get out of here. And then it's just like she said, 20 minutes later, she was, she was having an event at her place. And it's funny when, when me and Forrest get on the phone and we talk for, we talk for hours and hours and hours, and um it's really funny that it seems like every time we get on the phone something happens at her place and and that particular night uh it happened to both of us which is really weird
0: yeah that's
4: interesting i'm going to interject something there because uh it it it's the the Native Americans oftentimes uh, I know that I remember that my uh, roommate that was at the Baskin, uh in Alaska she had said that you don't talk about talk about them and you don't talk about any of that type of uh, stuff um, because that's what brings them in and Chuck and I kind of laughed about that but now we're becoming a little apprehensive about it.
5: Yeah, we got to find a different subject to talk about when we get on the phone, (laughs) I guess.
3: I got a better idea for us. What you're going to do is put some cameras, (laughs) infrared cameras or, you know, the motion cameras around your house. And then you and Chuck get on the phone and let's see what happens, see what kind of video you can get.
0: Well,
2: you know, it's going to happen. It'll get video of them being scared. (laughs)
5: yeah right you know it's it's funny that we talk about floodlights and cameras and stuff like that um and tom i i kind of spoke to you about this the other day that uh there's one place that i go to down in southeast oklahoma in the kiamichi mountains and uh i stay in a stay in a log cabin there that's a buddy of mine and um he lets me go down there every time I want to go down there. And anyway, I, uh, he, he has Bigfoot around the cabin and, um, one in particular is a female and she comes up to the cabin. She's not aggressive. Um, she's been seen several times. I casted the very first track on the property after he, after he built the cabin there. And, um, the thing is, he's put up lights, uh, oh, motion lights around the cabin. And what we've noticed is that she doesn't come around the cabin as much as she used to. And I think it's because of the lights and the cameras that are out there and, uh, she kind of stays away, but every now and then somebody will see her, um, the last time somebody saw her, she actually had two little ones with her. So, and I, and I told Forrest, I said, if you want them to get away from your place and not come around your, your, your uh, house there, uh, best thing for you to do is put up motion lights and cameras and they'll stay away from it.
3: I, I wonder we had uh, Chuck, we had a lady on from the Forest Service. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, the 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 district she's at in California, but she went out to I'm pretty sure it was Oklahoma and stayed in some cabins there.
5: Uh, yeah. Kathy Strain, yes, I know who you're talking about.
3: Oh, okay, mm-hmm. all right. And she had her encounter there. So, I, I want to ask you, do these cabins is there like just beyond the cabins a little ways, some hills or mountains or something?
5: Oh, it's, it's surrounded by mountains. Okay. Um, but the cabins, those cabins, um, I don't think are in existence anymore. I think, uh, we spent, me and one of my research partners, uh, went down last year and spent seven days out there. And, uh, we were actually looking for this place. And, a lot of people call it planet X. Some people call it, uh, the North American Wood ape conservatory. Um, a lot of people from all all around the country used to go out there and do research because they're, they're so, uh, there's so many of them down there. The chances of you actually getting a, a sighting or or finding evidence is uh, you can almost guarantee that's going to happen. And, um, but we went out looking for these cabins specifically because we, we were kind of interested in, in where they were and, and what they looked like. And, you know, to see if anybody was there. And when we got out there, we, we think we found one of the cabins and the cabin was kind of overtaken by nature. It was dilapidated. The only thing that you could actually see was, was the floorboard of the cabin. And we found a a big fire pit that was there that you could tell was really old. And there were bookcases, metal bookcases that were laying on the floors. Um, And we just assumed that that's where they kept their records when they were down there researching. Um, Supposedly, there's there's five, there was five cabins there, but I don't even think, uh, the only cabin we found was pretty, pretty bad. I mean, it had completely demolished itself over time. And these areas, <clears throat> these areas I'm talking about, there there used to be a way that you could get down through there with a pickup or a four wheel drive vehicle, but you can't even do that anymore. The roads are all washed out. Um, you can't even take a side by side in this area because it's, side by sides too, too wide to go through this area. Uh, we actually had to use four wheelers and, um, to get where we wanted to go. And in some cases, uh, there were great big timber logs that were where you could see where the road had been. These great big timber logs had been pulled down somewhere and dragged in there over the trail, uh, trying to keep people out of there. Um, it's a very active area, and you know what Kathy saw that time was exactly what she saw. I mean, I, I I fully believe that that whole area down there is just eat up with with Bigfoot.
3: Why would the cabins be in such disarray? I mean, why would they? You'd because th- I've seen houses that have been unoccupied for a very long period of time and they you know they get into a state of deferred maintenance but i'm just curious you know what happened to the cabins
5: i i i kind of feel like what you just said is true there um that part of oklahoma has more more rainfall and um i just think over a period of time that You know, these people came at certain parts of the year to do their research. And I think that, you know, the the other times that nobody was there, it just kind of just fell apart. I mean, it wasn't, these weren't log cabins or anything like that. They were were made by plywood and uh, they didn't have too much of a shelter to them from what I could see.
3: Ah, okay, yeah. So they may not have been exactly uh, uh, to code or anything. Just some, just some sort of uh, little shelters, makeshift shelters. Right. Okay. Yeah.
5: Re- research shacks or something like that I, is c- placed for them to sleep and while they were there, and that that sort of thing is is kind of the way we took it.
4: Well, I was going to say something here. You know, we're talking about lights and everything because that was. Chuck has suggested in course time you have too, about putting lights all around the uh the mobile home here, and I actually had put up uh, on the east um, excuse me the west side of this trader, the trader sits perfectly due east and west, running lengthwise east and west, and then it faces north, the front door goes to the north, and then the back door goes to the south. It's almost perfectly lined up. my barn's the same way, just perfectly lined up and <clears throat> I put a uh, solar motion light on the west side of this trailer and where where the, the dog pen was. And I had put it up out there because, uh, you know, at that point in time when I had Cagney out there, uh, he just worked. Oh, my God. He just worked all the time. And he just always. You know, and now what I realized what that poor dog was going through with those figure eight something walking around, walking around, and walking around back there behind him. And I know what you know what that something was. Uh, I just he, and of course, you've seen what I bought him since then, and he stays right directly across from my back door in the back backyard. And he is such a happy, happy dog. And but, um, it was what what night was it that I was talking to you? Chuck that uh that the motion light came on when I went outside uh, I happened to go out on the back porch and I don't even remember now what I went out
5: there for uh,
4: and the, the motion light came on and I was like okay I'm going back in
5: <laughs> I think that because, was I think that was a a, a week um uh, before all this uh, other happened yeah
4: yeah because because the, the cat or a dog can't Uh, make that motion light come on it has to be some you have to be at least human size and within the range of the light and the light is actually mounted on the uh the uh the end of the trailer and i and and y'all know that i have since put up a six foot high fence all around my my yard i've got i've made a big yard here but it's all got a six foot high fence And of course, I realized that's probably nothing for them to scale uh, and come on, come on over. But um, that light came on and I was like, okay, because it it, it registered on me that it's got to be at least human size to to make that light come on. And I I just I was like, I told Chuck, I'm going in the house, (laughs) not no, I'm going in the house and uh, I have two pole lights on the south side. And it lights up everything out there like daylight. And now the only, and then on the back, then I have, you come around and in front of the, the trailer, almost directly in front of it, that's where I I, uh, I put the cat house. And, and what it is, this is one of those, and I think, Tom, you've seen that picture too of that building. I've It's one of these uh, uh, buildings you buy and they move it in for you. And it's uh, 20 by 16, and it's got a heater and air conditioner in there for the cats, and um, then uh, that's almost directly across from my front door, and I actually mounted a motion light on the west side of it as well, facing towards that figure eight, and, you know, I just have always had a very, very peculiar feeling from that, those cedars over there because it's so, so thick in there, And, um, you can't, I can, I mean, you can look in there and, and there's, you can't see anything. It's just black. And then, but somebody can actually stand in there because we did that. We went over there after we saw all that, that figure eight, you can stand in there and look towards the house and see everything perfectly well but nobody can see you because it's because it is absolutely black black in there. Well, the only place I don't have a light is on this, the master bedroom and this trailer is on the East side. And that's my bedroom. And the other two bedrooms are on the West side and the only end, this end on the East side is the only one that I don't have a light on. And, um, um, uh, there is actually a motion light up there, but we can't get it to work. So I actually need a new one. And, and, of course, trying to find somebody. I can't get up there and do it myself, so it's way up on the top of the, the trailer. I can't find anybody to replace the thing for me. So uh, eventually, some, one of these days, I'm going to get that thing replaced, and, and then I'm going to have a light up there. And maybe because it's, it's strange now that they're just coming to my bedroom of course there's nobody you know staying down on the other end of the the trailer but you know i've told y'all tales about when my uh my daughter and her children my two granddaughters and of course they're in their 20s now and they could they used to tell me stories about all the tapping on the wall and the scratching on the you know chuck and tom i told you both about this that they were they were saying that that it was their papa KC. uh their their grandfather that uh he was just telling them that he was still here and i just thought well that's kind of okay this is kids thinking but you know I, i i wasn't following their train of logic and uh and then when i started hearing stories about all these uh bigfoot coming up and tapping on windows with kids inside there i just i really got a very very bad feeling about all the tapping and the Scratching on the wall and and knocking on the wall down there that that was probably something other than Papa KC letting them know everything was okay. So um, and and now I I do realize that that was uh, it probably wasn't a real good thing. And I I guess it's a blessing that I still my my girls are grown and gone now. So.
3: Forrest, did you ever hear any of the tapping?
4: No, I didn't. Uh-uh. I wasn't. Uh, I never had, you know what? I never had any issues when the, the house was here. Uh, but now I told you that, I, I think, did I tell you that? Well, my mother, my grandmother used to say when she was living in the home here, my grandfather built that house. It was actually a cedar, log cedar home, the home was 150 years old and I was in the process of restoring it when it burned down um it and the windows in that thing were absolutely huge I mean um just huge windows you could open the windows in the front of the house and of course this is Texas and Chuck (laughs) knows exactly what I'm talking about because he lives in Oklahoma the wind never stops blowing here and uh you could open the front windows in the house and it was just like a wind tunnel, even during the summer. And we had these big, huge oak trees that hung over the, the house. So it was always cool. And, but my grandmother used to, used to say that there, she had, she had people and she always said people window peeking all the time. She complained about window peekers. And now my, my daddy tab, who was my granddaddy, died in um, 1989 and my grandmother lived for another 10 years and she was 96 when she passed away and she always always complained about Linda pictures. Well, my mother came in and she mounted halogen lights and I mean this was a big halogen light like you got on your pole lights up here and she put them all around the house and every night those things would come on and even when i was when i was living there they were still functional and they would come on and that whole yard and even partly into the the pasture would be lit up like daylight and after she put those up you know my grandmother never complained about window peekers anymore so you know it's like you know, you start thinking about some of the things that you were told as a child. Because I told you that my, my daddy, Chad, used to tell me, you know, he didn't want me out after dark <clears throat> because of the, the you know, woolly boogers. Woolly boogers will get you. Well, you know, people don't talk about stuff like that. You know, when you're a kid, you think it's all funny. Ha ha. Well, you know, when you suddenly get older that, you know, maybe I should have listened to my daddy, Chad, and Mama, because they may have known what they were talking about. And... Um it's just, you know, people need to pay more attention to what's going on around around them, I think, sometimes. And and people don't do that anymore, I don't think.
3: Wait, are you saying the kids used to do that? <laughs> pay attention <laughs> to what their
4: folks said?
3: <laughs> I've well, never known maybe. that. <laughs>
4: I don't know i was I was always kind of a peculiar kid, you know I was saying I think I told you this once that i I never lived in fear of God. I lived in fear of mother because mother could reach me a lot faster but uh uh <laughs> um i had <laughs> I had a very very strict upbringing, and I'm going to tell you. I never did the things that, you know, I didn't sink out of the house and I didn't smoke, I didn't drink and I didn't do all this sort of stuff that a lot of kids did and never did drugs. And I guess I was a pretty boring person, but, you know, uh, it was what it was. So, uh, and I am what I am. So what can I say?
3: (laughs) Well, you, it turned out just, excellent really good
4: so <laughs> well thank you <laughs>
3: I that wish I'd been one of those kids of who'd listen to his parents
5: I think she is she has too and you know I, I told her the other night she's a jewel I think she's a jewel
4: oh you're a sweetheart thank you <laughs>
3: Chuck let me ask you this um those three whistles that you heard, because I've I've heard that at nighttime. I only heard one, mm-hmm. and it's it's very distinct. It's like somebody mm-hmm. putting their fingers to their lips, and you know, it's about as loud as a car horn. Um, what else have you heard out there, or whatever? What else have you experienced, if anything, when you've been doing the, your your rounds on the oil rigs?
5: Well. I, 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 I think I told you, Tom, that Oklahoma was very deceiving. Uh, everybody seems to think it's it's flatland, and uh, it's really not. Uh, I mean, you have those areas where it is flatland. And it's nothing but farmland and, and stuff like that. But uh, Oklahoma's got some, out in the western part of the state, you've, you've got these huge, giant ravines. And uh, Forrest and I were kind of talking about that last night and because uh, Texas is pretty much the same way. I mean, you, you've got the same kind of uh, land that, that Texas has here in Oklahoma. And when, I'm, when I say big ravines, I'm talking huge ravines where you, you'll be driving along. You, you think that this is all flatland, it's all farmland, and most of it is farmland. Uh, but then you go back to an area, uh, I, I'll give you a prime example. I, I had these guys, uh, that went to a college out uh, west of here and there's a lake out there and, um, they told me a story where they were fishing out there one night. Um, uh, that's what they used to do in their spare time. And, uh they'd go out there to this lake and, and fish. And he, he flat out told me, he said, we got ran out of there. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, uh, he said, we were fishing one night and we had tree limbs start flying over the top of us and trying to hit us and rocks were being thrown at us. And he said, we ended up, we ended up leaving. And, uh, when you drive out to this place, I've been out there, and wanted to kind of look the the place over after these guys told me that. And driving out there, it was nothing but flatland. And I thought, man, there's there's no way there's anything going on out here. Uh, It's wide open. And uh, the further I drove, I, I get down to this great big huge ravine, and in this ravine is where the lake sits. And all around that lake is nothing but, but tim- timber. And um, I thought, well, this is a little bit more interesting than what I thought it was going to be. And uh, I had my, my son with me, and we decided to kind of look around a little bit. And um, first thing I did when I got there was look at dumpsters because a lot of times, I, well, not a lot of times, but sometimes you can you can find a handprint or... A greasy swipe on the side of the trash can or something that tells you hey here's some evidence and uh so i didn't see anything on the dumpsters nothing on the dumpsters they were all clean and uh but there were two trailers that were sitting in the camping area two travel trailers and um i went over and and i thought you know Bigfoot's pretty curious. I'm, I'm going to go over here where these trailers are and kind of look around that area. And about probably, uh, I guess, eight or nine feet from these travel trailers was a a cottonwood tree, a great big, huge cottonwood tree. And they were at the, it was at the back of the trailers. So I went back there where the cottonwood tree was. And lo and behold, I find a 15-inch track. It was a right-footed track sitting, standing on the side of that cottonwood tree. And the way it was sitting, he had been, he or she had been watching those campers. And a few minutes later, my son calls me and says, Hey, Dad, come over here and take a look at this. And I went over there, and we found, he had found a left, a left foot track and a right foot track and all of them were 15 inch so you could tell where this thing had had looked behind the camper and was checking things out and then went back into the wood line where the other two tracks were well to top that off i looked at him and and told him i said well let's go down let's go down by the lake where the bank is and i said maybe we can find some tracks at the bank too So we start walking down toward the bank, and this is broad daylight. It's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And off to our right were these weeds that were probably four to five feet tall. I mean, they were a lot of weeds there, a lot of brush. And as we're walking down toward the bank, uh, I hear what sounds like an 800-pound rooster crowing and my son immediately looks up at me and says dad that's not a rooster is it and i said no that's not a rooster i said but we're okay we're fine and um i when i drove out of that place i looked around for farmhouses uh where somebody might have chickens and there was there's no farmhouses around there so I mean, I don't know for sure that was a Bigfoot, but, you know, they I've come to the conclusion that they can mimic other animals, and I think that's thats what was going on the day that we were there.
3: You know, and I also think that they're, well, they're, they're incredibly intelligent. You know, I think, I i, I wouldn't be shocked if, to find out they were at least as intelligent as humans. But it just goes to show that if indeed that was a Bigfoot, I have no reason to disbelieve that, that they simply mimic what's in their environment, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's owls or whether I've heard them mimic what certainly sounded like ravens and and other animals, as well as that whistle. So there's no reason to believe that somewhere along the line they picked up on roosters and they were smart enough to know that... Mm -hmm. That is something that they could probably use. It's not communicating to you. It's communicating to the others, I'm fairly certain. Right. And they're just, you know, it's a signal or a message. Um, we're going to wrap up pretty quick here, but I want to ask you, do you know any do – you, do you stay in contact with any of the other um, – I don't know what the t- job title is or what you do, but uh, we had a guy on back in February of 21, who does almost the same kind of work. He has to go around and he does, uh, he records the information Mm -hmm. from the, uh, I'm assuming they're oral derricks. And he was just east, he was in Oklahoma, but he's east of, I believe it was Carthage, uh, Carthage, Texas. And he also had an encounter with one. So I'm just curious if you, do you talk to any of the other guys out there and have any of these other, do you know of any of the other people doing a similar type of work? Have they have any of them had an encounter?
5: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, uh, we had a guy that worked for us. There's another location that I go to at night and, uh, he used to work for us and, uh, he swore up and down that he saw a Bigfoot out there and there's, there's a big thick wood line that goes through there. And, uh, I, I have no doubt that he said he saw one and said he heard them screaming. Uh, I haven't, at that particular location, I've never had anything weird uh, happen to me while I was there, except for uh, one night I heard what sounded like a barred owl, um, and it it did its call, but at the end of the call, it sounded like a, a kicked-off chimpanzee. Is the best way I can describe it. Um, now,
3: I would call that weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's just me though.
5: Yeah. And uh, now I I do have a lot of buddies that that are involved with Bigfoot research. Some of them are my teammates that I take at, that we that, that go out with me to look at different areas and do investigations and stuff. And, um, of course they've, they've seen them, um, in Western Oklahoma quite a bit. Um, they've also seen what people call dog man out that way, uh, quite a bit. Um, I've never seen anything like that. Don't really want to see anything like that. Um, cause you talk about panic mode. I think I would be in panic mode if something like that happened. Um, but the inter the interesting thing that, that I heard from somebody who lives up in kind of the northwestern part of the state, there's a lot of oil wells going on up there, and uh, a lot of drilling took place up there a year or two ago, and uh, he drove at night, too, and he told me stories where he would drive up on location and the way these locations are, some of these wells, they produce, uh, natural gas and some of them produce, uh, H2S gas, which is very deadly. So you, we, we wear monitors when we go out to a place like that. And if it, if it dings, we leave the area because it's, it's real deadly stuff, but they, they have these great big, um, tubes that go way up in the air. And uh, you'll you'll see this all over Oklahoma in areas where they're drilling or have dr- have drilled, and they they burn that gas off, and the flames go up probably three or four feet in some cases because there's so much gas that's being burnt off. Well, he told me stories uh, almost on a weekly basis that he would he would pull up on location and. On the side of the location, uh, he would see them, and they were they were looking at the flames, like they were fascinated by by fire. Um, I've had several reports like that.
3: Well, Chuck, we're going to have to have you back to talk about this some more. I'm really curious. I just really quick, I took a look at H2S, mm-hmm. and that's hydrogen sulfide and i know what that is it's actually more deadly than uh sodium cyanide yeah um, it's 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 bad stuff so we're gonna we're we're at the end of our uh, hour here maybe a little bit past so we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up but we're gonna keep you uh i'm gonna keep your number we're gonna definitely stay in touch and and you know how to get a hold of us so yes sir if you gets if you get some activity going on updates uh yeah, we are hoping to hear from you,
5: Chuck. Well, if, if I get the oh, go ahead, Chuck. If I get the hib, if I get the hippie jibbies again, I'll, I'll definitely give you a shout. Call
3: call, call Forrest first. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
4: Yeah. thanks guys. <laughs> all
2: right, all right guys, great job, Chuck. Thank you again, buddy. Uh, Forrest, you as bet. always, we're gonna wrap up, folks, and uh, stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, near Richland, Washington, summer 1966, about a dozen boys from the Tri-Cities area were making a pastime of hunting the White Demon, an eight-foot tall, dull white, hair-covered animal of very heavy build, with eyes that shone red in the dark. They would drive around at night looking for it, most commonly finding it in an abandoned gravel pit near West Richland. They shot at it several times, once it chased a car and scratched and dented the door. It had a high-pitched scream and left tracks more than 16 inches long, like a wide human foot. Roger Patterson heard about these boys shortly afterward and talked to several of them. He said he also talked to people at the sheriff's office, and they were aware of what was supposed to be going on, but had not done anything serious about it. Early in 1967, Rene DeHinden and I questioned two of the boys, and in trying to locate another of them, we talked to his mother. She confirmed that the boys had discussed what they were doing at that time it was supposedly going on, and that their boy had taken her husband's deer rifle with him one night. Like the sheriff's deputies, the parents had not seen fit to do anything about it. Names given to me by Roger Patterson were Roger, True, Carl and Jim Franklin, John McKnight, Tom Thompson, Alvin Anderson, Greg Poitier, Shelby Green, Roger Howard, Bob McDonald, and Ron Blackburn. I no longer recall which ones I spoke to. The country around the gravel pit is completely open, with little vegetation and no mountains within many miles. We could think of no possible reason for a Sasquatch to be there. On the other hand, the boys sounded very convinced, and the reports tallied with those from other parts of the Yakima Valley that year they said had been cruising around in the small hours of the early morning they could find the White Demon, once it paced a car running 40 miles an hour. We're back from the break. We have Forrest with us, who is our regular now, thankfully. And Milo is not with us. He's been sick, so he's going to, I don't know how long he's going to be out, but uh, he has trouble with his medications. You know, We did a number of tours in Iraq, so he has uh, health issues from that. But uh, And our good friend Moran is joining us. So, Tom, should we uh, jump right in here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to thank both of our guests today. Uh, it's a real treat having you guys on. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if you enjoy the show, let us know, click the like and subscribe. And if you want to support us, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, we have a link in the description for Patreon.
2: And we have silence, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess Hi, Moran, let's, let's go to Moran. You, you always have great questions, so I'm sure you have something in mind. Yeah,
6: well, I've been – let me start by saying my mother was a voracious reader, and she sort of passed that on to her son. Now, I've been uh, – when I was younger, uh, there was some thought about going to university and studying, taking some field. Uh, But I found university kind of um, very um, inclusive. In its subject matter, when you go going into a field and uh, you become specialized in that field and what what have you. But I I I was more interested in other things than that. So I I, I just uh, along my life I've I've looked into a lot of different things. i um, uh read in anthropology, archaeology, paleontology, primatology, and zoology. So you combined all that. So you have a great no, uh, knowledge base to draw from. So one of the things I got interested in was this field and cryptozoology. This, these creatures um, being one of them, I've, and as I've gone through in, in my later life up to this point, um, taken a greater interest in. And uh, I've talked to several people who've had uh, encounters and, and incidences. Now, I've been monitoring online uh, a lot of channels and comments from a lot of people and in regards to these creatures. And Will has stated this in the past, that our behavior has shifted uh, from decades ago or hundreds of years ago. We're not out in the wild as much. We're not hunting as much. Animals will respond to that. And um, in the field that I work in, I I see a lot of that. Now, they're they're coming into areas that they normally in the past have not been coming into. Now, I've been monitoring the Gentleman's Channel from the southern states. And these creatures uh, are coming into rural areas now. Not staying in the deep wild, but they're coming into rural areas. And I did monitor one gentleman's channel that he's an ongoing investigator stated that there's been a number of deaths in regard to what they're referring to as dogmen. I don't pertain that they're any kind of canid or such. I know through anthropological studies that Um, like a chimp is a primate so is a a, a gorilla so is a baboon so you like Willis stated you can have various types of the same generic general creature that shows uh, adaptive features for their environments down through time and I kind of look at nature as almost a schizophrenic kind of being because I've seen it in a wide number of environments that um uh, you can have a very stable environment for a very long time creatures will maintain their their body type they may grow in size due to uh breeding um purposes but if there's a some kind of uh shift in the environment you can have a quick in uh uh, genetic adaptation to that shift that uh, or very short uh, span of time you can get something completely different. Uh, elephants uh, in Africa are a good example. The hunting of uh, African elephants has been on the past decades. They're now having elephants born that don't develop tusks. So the, these uh, dog men that they're talking about in the south and I've worked down there and I was told not to go in certain areas I may not come back and I listened to people and um, so that said these it seems that these things are, are breeding up in population and coming into rural areas due to our behavior
3: Moran right, I'm going to jump in for just for a real quick question, just a little follow-up. You were told not to go into certain areas. Are you talking about uh, in Canada or somewhere else? I was working down in the States at the time. I was in my tw-
6: mid-late 20s, and I work in a marine field. So I I, I work with uh, a lot of private yachts, super yachts, uh, commercial. So I got in areas that other people don't usually go, Um away from the tourist areas that are heavily policed or, or heavily populated. So I was in areas that, um, like in Louisiana, um, and I I got to know some of the locals and they said they had a certain type of behavior and they told me not to go anywhere without anybody local And some people are very, 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 very suspicious down there, outsiders. So you don't get a lot of information exchange. And um, some of the people don't realize that down there, there are really, really densely foliated areas that you could hide a dinosaur in, nobody would know. So I've watched one uh, gentleman's channel, they were out a local uh, southern investigator, and they were out in their local area, and they were uh, walking along talking about the sounds that they were hearing, and all of a sudden, like, they were walking along, you could hear birds and and squirrels, and, and then it just went dead. Everything just shut up. Just, there was no sound at all, and they they uh, kept walking along, talking, didn't click in real right that moment. And then they said they smelled something really bad, and they got a really bad feeling, and they backed out of that area. They, one of them, one of the gentlemen, became very, very nervous, and he just uh, the other gentleman was looking up up the hill, and he turned around, and his buddy was taken off on him. And um, they said they just got a really bad bad feeling and they just turned around and got out of there
3: okay so the guy running away who took off yeah. I mean, he was just uh he was spooked to the point point. and they said they he, smelled something as well
6: yeah really bad smell yeah but i know they a thing said it, or two about that absolutely yeah. they said that it they don't think it was like they've been working with bigfoot right and they know those creatures, but this is something else. They said this is something they they just were really afraid of. They couldn't really identify, identify what it was, but they said it's 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 not um, Bigfoot or Sasquatch.
3: It's something else. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there are other things out there, um, and they're they're interesting. Uh, I think the scope is, um, you know, at least, at least of, of this channel of us is uh, not that we don't we don't discount the other ones. Uh, we just, you know, our focus is yeah. primarily on Bigfoot, which is keeps us plenty busy. And there's, you know, it's a huge. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's a huge topic with with a lot of uh, a lot of room for discovery. But I wanna I also want to back up for a second because you did mention that Sasquatch is, in your opinion, is moving into more rural areas, and I think that's something that, I mean, we've seen that. But also, I think that's something that maybe Forrest can definitely comment on, right?
4: I can relate to that. Yes. Um. You know, oftentimes uh, uh, predators and, uh, uh, of course, human encroachment uh, will cause the movement of animals into other areas. Uh, But I think um, a human encroachment has actually, in a lot of ways, provided for Bigfoot a um, luncheon buffet, so to speak, because of the animals, uh, our garbage, our pets and uh, you see a lot of these areas where you have a lot of sightings where you have missing missing pets missing animals and unfortunately missing people and um, let me apologize too for my voice because uh, Tom and and Will know that (laughs) I was up till six this morning in the night air with uh, a mare and baby so uh, I do apologize my voice is kind of Scratchy, and I have to keep clearing my throat. I've got a bit of a sore throat, so I apologize for that. Um, However, back to the subject in hand Um, primates respond just like any other um, mammal, Uh, people do as well. You know, if something is forcing them uh, or uh, causing them issues in an area, then uh, you see them move out of it into another direction and um, like I say I think that we have as humans have provided them with a reason to move into rural areas and uh, uh, I I had to laugh when he was talking about uh, Louisiana now I've not not ever worked uh, specifically in Louisiana but I did work in uh, uh, East Texas as a archaeologist and, and y'all know i do have a degree in archaeology too so um as it turned out we had somebody one day and i think i've related this story to y'all but uh just to uh, emphasize the density of the forest in those areas we had had somebody the day before break into one of our uh, company vehicles and it had been cold the day before and we had our coats and we put them in there. Uh, while we had uh, had gone to lunch, and we all piled into another vehicle and left our coats, and uh, we had left our not needing our compasses obviously at the restaurant, we left them uh, for the most part in our pockets. At least there was three or four of us that did. I being one of them, <clears throat> and I was the crew chief, and I should have known better. But uh, anyway, to make a long story short, the next day we get out in the woods and everything's just fine we're doing transits uh 30 meters uh, apart and <clears throat> sometimes we could see each other sometimes we couldn't and i got lost i got completely turned around and so did uh, uh two other individuals uh one individual found the group pretty quick because he heard somebody uh yelling because they got to the end of the transit and uh, were missing all of us I finally, after realizing that I was going around in circles, I just sat down and, um, you know, would periodically yell out and they finally found me, but those woods out there, um, you, you can't see in them. They have a lot of, uh, berry bushes like blackberry and, uh, such as that. And it makes it absolutely impossible to get around in there and to be able to see anything. And, um, and, of course, the ground cover is almost all exclusively pine needles back out there in East Texas with all the piney woods and such. So it's not like you can easily follow your footsteps where you came from or where you've been. So it was a rather frightening experience, actually. I yeah, mean, I, I knew eventually that, uh, somebody would find me, but, you know, still. <laughs> I
6: know that. I know that oh, too well. Uh, I used to work down Central South America, and uh, you were talking about a three-tier canopy. Uh,
4: Right (laughs)
6: Actually uh, I know what it's like to be afraid in those situations Because I I was young I didn't know any better I came off a a boat And the jungle was kind of inviting You know, you got that uh, sense of exploration in you (laughs) And a young person probably should know better But I decided to go wander around in the woods And uh, shortly thereafter Got myself really, really lost and then I was lost for three days. And that good night, luck. the initial night, I started getting stalked by a jaguar. And I was stalked by a jaguar for three days until I got out of there. So I know what it's like to be prey, and uh, it's not a good feeling. And, well, when very very few people know what it's like to be prey. That those few days taught me what it's like to be prey and and I, I was prey in the water as well because i was working on yachts and people dropped things overboard and i uh i uh, took a spawn myself to dive into the water go down and retrieve some of these art- articles and um i took a spear gun with me because there were sharks in those waters different types of sharks and i got this feeling i got down at the bottom i got this feeling i whipped around and here coming at me was a 14 foot tiger shark and all i had with me was that spear gun and a cinder block and that spear gun would be like throwing a toothpick at a rhino and uh, i was going to pick that cinder block up and ram it in its mouth that came at me but it circled me three times and then swam off. And the captain of the boat said he'd never seen anybody come up out of the water quite so fast before in his life. Um, so I, I kind of know that feeling, and um, it's it's not a good feeling. Uh, you have um, I, I had to stand there, stand my ground, because predators—if you turn, it re- uh, uh, kicks in their their predatory instinct, and automatically you become prey and they uh, will come at you. And uh, depending on the predator, um, it could be a very bad situation for you. But um, I've learned from those experiences um, and recommend that even if you run into one of these creatures, um, the best you can do is stand your ground and indicate to them that you're not going to be easy prey. And most, and most predators, they don't want to engage in a uh, contact where they might be injured because it may mean their death if they're injured or something. So they're very calculative in uh, assessing uh, a prey, and they'll, uh, given the um, vagaries of the specific species, uh, they could assess that uh, prey um, for days before they act on, on their predatory nature. So, uh, that said, um, I, I, I hope that people will take that information and take it to heart because uh, you're not going to run one of these things. Um, I've watched different predators um, cover distances in fractions of seconds, and and you're not going to be able to compete with that in any any way, shape, or form. You have to use your brain. That's what our adaptive signature uh is and you have to use your brain you can't let the um fight or flight uh instinct over a reason they teach you that in a lot of the safety courses that i've taken over the years uh to save your life you have to you you have to think so if you get in a scenario of uh running into one of these creatures you have to indicate to, to them that uh, it's not going to be easy and more often than not, you're probably not going to stand a chance, but they're going to, it's going to make them think twice.
3: Well, that's a good point. Um, Moran, it's, um, you know, when it, when it comes to Bigfoot, they're, I don't know. I, I I think some of them are just, um, malevolent and I think some of them are not, but even the ones that are not, excuse me, are not benevolent. They're uh, I think they're kind of neutral in between
2: Forrest. what are your thoughts on that? i mean you, you don't I don't think you really have two camps. you just got varying dispositions right
4: right um you know primates are just like humans, they all have different personalities um you can you can find some that are i don't want to use the word benevolent, but they're more docile uh And then you have others that are more aggressive. Uh, Your males most generally are going to be the aggressive uh, of the group, whether I don't care whether it's, uh, you know, gorillas, chimps, or um, macaques, or even the lower order of uh, monkeys. It's always going to be the male that's going to be the the more uh, aggressive. But um, you can have uh, some females that, are aggressive, more aggressive in nature than the, the other females. But um, I think I think he is correct in one assumption that standing your ground is the proper way to handle it because it in, in with any mammal, uh, including big cats, if you run, you're basically uh, th- that kicks in their their drive to follow you and attack you. Uh, I actually had a, an encounter with a mountain lion when I was doing my field school in Utah and I came upon it on the trail going back up to camp for lunch. And <clears throat> I don't even remember now the reason why I was late getting out of there and getting back up there, but I was all alone on the, the trail and I come along and there's this mountain lion sitting there in the the trail like a house cat <laughs> and and of course, as soon as I appeared, it stood up. And I had—I was lucky enough that day, I think, that I had a um, um, jacket on. And I think, had I not had a jacket on, I would have probably been stripping my blouse off or my uh, shirt up that I had on at the time and waving it at him. But what I did immediately was, because we had been told that they did have mountain lions in the area, so we had gone—they had gone over some basic things that we needed to do. And I unzipped my jacket and immediately grabbed the bottom of it and and uh, spread it out like I had great big wings. And it was a, a navy blue jacket. So uh, this mountain lion took one look at me like, oh, my God, this this uh, human just grew in size and uh, it took off. I was lucky. You know, it could have just as easily um, turned the other way and uh, come after me. And I'm not so sure that I would have been the brave soul to have stood there until it came right up on me and attacked me. But uh, I probably would have been looking for some place to run at that point in time. But uh, apes are the same way. I mean, if you, uh, the only difference with apes is if you do direct eye contact, that is usually, uh, you're inviting them to uh, attack you. And uh, so the best thing to do is actually to avert your eyes and, and or duck your head and by moving your head downward, it's an act of submission. And usually that will avoid any type of aggression. Um, you know, I've watched other primates in these kind of situations. Sometimes the aggressor will run by and, and maybe hit or swat the, uh, the intended victim, but that's usually the only thing once the 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 intended victim ducks their head and shows submission, it's kind of like uh, uh Indians taking coup walking uh you know riding by on horseback and just hitting them with their uh, uh bow and uh you know it's kind of like taking points. you know I took coup and i'm I'm going away now, and um, yeah. I think it works the same way with primates, too. I want
3: to jump in real quick, uh, and this is a question for both Moran and, and uh, you for us. You know, talking about predators and specifically, you know, just talking about the mountain lions, and but any other kind of animal that's coming up to prey on you, what are your thoughts? Do you have an opinion or any research on the effectiveness of the air horns that you can buy in your outdoor stores that are uh, considered a deterrent to animal attacks?
6: Well, I I can probably uh, answer to that question. Uh, It it really depends on the species of predator. And I know one instance, uh, a friend's son was in uh, the Rocky Mountains, mountain biking, and um, with a friend, and his friend had one of those air horns, and they came up upon a grizzly and his friend thought it'd be a good idea to get that air horn out and blast it at the bear. Now bears react in a fight or flight reaction instantly, and um, it chose to attack them and only because they were on bikes and on a very technical trail, uh, the bear couldn't get its body bulk around the corners fast enough to get up to them. So, by very slim margin, they got down the mountain and got out of there. Uh, but that that would really depend on the species of predator. If you were on a, if it was a cat, they're probably a lot more supple in their uh, their uh, movement ability and uh, a large cougar. And I've seen uh, cougars get up to three hundred pounds. So that's an animal you're not going to overpower. They're one of the most powerful cats on the planet per pound, um, and they can leap the length of a school bus if need be. Uh, so, uh, and I saw um, footage of cougars just sitting by well-traveled trails waiting. And there's been a number of deaths by cougars out west in Canada on well-traveled trails that never used to have any problems. So that's, that's an in- indicative pattern of how animals are readapting to our new
3: behaviors. <clears throat> well, I think yeah, I a lot of your it.
4: wildlife – oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Uh, no, no, uh, yeah, go ahead for us. Well, you knew I lived in Alaska for 17 years, so I have quite a bit of familiarity with grizzlies and with uh, Black Bear. And I think he's right in one sense of the word. Uh, I never had to use an air horn, but we, we had that. We always uh, went camping with those and, and with uh, uh, Bear Spray. And, of course, a lot of people don't realize that a Bear Spray is useless unless you apply it properly. Um, and, um, but... Grizzlies are a different, are a completely different beast than uh, black bear. Black bear will more readily run from you. Uh, grizzlies, uh, they're, they're less likely to just tuck tail and run. But uh, if you, you're making a lot of noise and uh, <clears throat> and making a lot of disturbance, most generally they will choose uh, flight over, over fight. Um, They even recommend in hunting situations and in camping situations that you put uh, bells on your legs so that when you're walking, that they uh, are immediately alerted to your presence. And uh, because you don't want to step over a log and end up stepping on a sleeping bear, Um, and I think the nature of uh, the beast is too that, like on bicycles, that motion of the, that's almost like fleeing prey. So it just kind of kicks into their instinct to follow immediately. Um, now, he's correct in the assumption that a, uh, a cat would be far more agile in chasing somebody on a bike, and they have many instances of uh, that happening in California, uh, people being attacked uh, by mountain lions, on, um, uh, by people that are riding, uh, of people riding bicycles being attacked by mountain lions. And then we've got the issue with these predators are losing their fear of people because there's so many people going into the woods. They're, they're, they're having contact with them on a daily, sometimes daily basis all the time, and uh, that they wouldn't have normally and if, we, if we weren't out there.
6: Yeah, i, I got to agree with you, of uh, course. Um, I know that they have – like here, we don't have these issues in Atlantic Canada um on the West Coast, they actually have classes for for uh, young students in regards to behavior and how to deal with these predators um, regularly. So that's that's a, a regional response to a, a parent threat um, that it's hard for people here to relate to. like I've kind of well traveled well read and I, uh, I understand a lot of different issues. So um, it's almost like another cultural area. But to deal with these animals, you have to know, have a good knowledge base and uh, understanding them and know what not to do or, or, or the behaviors, what not to do. So you won't attract their attention. Um, so um, there's been a number of deaths um up here uh for reason of sheer ignorance of nature. There's uh a real big um, gap in understanding between humanity and nature now. People just don't understand nature anymore in a in a wider sense. Um so that that's attributable to that not being aware of your surroundings. You really, really like I'm a tr- trained observer and I'm trained. I've been trained to be hyper aware of my surroundings. And that's saved my life in uh, uh, I don't know how many times. But m- most people I see, um, they're very narrow focused in their behavior. We're used to getting what I, we want when we want now in our society. And we live—we live in an artificial environment. Those animals are out there uh, to survive, and they'll do whatever they uh, need be to make that happen. And if you're in an um, area they are, and you're not responding to them, they perceive that as a weakness, and um, will, in worst case scenario,
3: make a meal out of you. All right, I'm gonna. I'm going to jump in real quick. We've got a series of questions from our listeners. We're going to tackle those in just a moment. Uh, But before we move on, I want to ask, so as far as a mountain lion goes, I would suspect that, and we have a lot of them. I'm I'm in the West Coast as well. We have, uh, I mean, we've actually had one in the city park here about two, three weeks ago. I would imagine that the air horns, because those are incredibly loud would be, if nothing else, a part-time, uh, a momentary deterrent. Obviously, you're not going to give it a blast and run because it's, it's game on at that point. What are your thoughts? So do you think that with a mountain lion, do you think a uh, air horn would be effective?
6: It depends on the situation, but cats usually won't stand their ground if put up a, a really strong defensive uh, posture. Um, they're an amb- ambush predator and they rely on that once they, um, they, they'll come up and jump on you and, and bite into your neck and they won't let go. But if you put up a very strong facial, um, aggressive posture, it, it, it um, diffuses a situation that, uh, they don't have the advantage anymore. And yeah, that's not worth, not worth the the attempt to get injured.
3: Yeah, and that's a real good point that they are uh, they oftentimes, and cats will do this. They'll attack from a high place, uh, the mountain lions. So if you're if you're hiking, you really want to be aware of the trees because that's where the cats yeah. are, and you also want to be aware of overhangs and bluffs because they're going to be up there as well. And it happens in a nanosecond. Now, uh-huh. Bears are a different situation altogether. They're very pugnacious
6: yes. and it doesn't matter if you're facing them. It's better to face them than not and stand your ground. But once you turn, you, you instantly become that prey source. Yes. These, uh, these other predators, I would assume, would be the same thing. Um, if, you, if you're not aware of your surroundings, if you're oblivious to what's going on around you, you're, you're in a weakened, a very weakened position. putting putting yourself in a very weakened position uh, and they will take
3: advantage of that. Yeah. You want to maintain situational awareness, especially with uh, this creature. And and I'll just real quick. I'll also, I want to throw in that another excellent, and I have the statistics I've read is actually it's more effective by almost 90%, about 88% more effective than firearms is the uh, bear spray. It's got to be bear spray, not pepper spray, but bear spray yeah. for, uh, because it, both for cats and, and bears and also coyotes and wolves, uh, because it makes a loud noise. It covers a large area and you don't have the concern of somebody firing wildly with a, you know, 45 or something and, ha- and they miss the mark and maybe hit somebody else, you know, the, cause that. That, that round will travel a great distance.
6: Those those sprays are very directional. Um, well, not they're they're focused on a, a directional stream. But if you have a wind, strong wind, you have to yeah, take yeah, care yeah. Of that into into account. Uh, but for instance, just to retouch on what I said is that like, I I guided here in Nova Scotia. I've guided people into the into the back woods and I was guiding a couple women and uh, I was awake late at night and I heard co- a pack of coyotes and they were coming toward the camp. I, I knew what was going to happen if I didn't react so I got up and I went into the bush and confronted and it was a pack of four or five and uh, I had a light and I saw all these eyes uh, so I just turned the light off and uh, I was an upright larger predator and I bellowed at them and all I saw were, were, eyes disappearing into the bush. So I knew they would have come into the camp and investigated and possibly threatened those women. So I had to do something. Uh, so my response was a very aggressive one. I wouldn't recommend people try that. Uh, if you don't understand the animal, but I, I got a good understanding of, of animals and, uh, so I, I, I took the proper measures in that situation, and it really depends
3: on the situation. Yeah, it does. Shotgun works good in that situation as well because you can cover it, a Yeah, lot that would work around. too <laughs> with double odd buck. Okay, guys, I'm going to jump in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we have uh, a bunch of questions from our listeners, and real quick, I just want to say thank you, folks, for writing your questions in because they keep the topic alive, um, and we we. Don't respond back in writing when you when you write your questions in. I think somebody some people expect that. <clears throat> but we, we put your questions on the air so that everybody can benefit from the response. Okay, so David wants to know, um, this This is in regards now back to Bigfoot, how would they lose heat if they're unable to sweat? And I don't know if we have the answer to that, but or could they why some witnesses report they smell bad. Uh, Is it, are they sweating into their fur or hair? And I'm just going to throw it out. I think I'm going to toss this one to, I think I'm going to toss it to Forrest first. And we'll just kind of do a round table on this.
4: Well, I don't know that anybody's ever done a study on uh, sweating in um, Bigfoot. (laughs) but. I would assume that they are able to sweat just like uh, uh, all of us are. Uh, primates, to a certain degree, uh, uh, sweat less than than us. We have uh, uh, sweat glands on in particular parts of our body, and we also uh, primates uh, do as well. They also have um, scent glands. And uh, chimpanzees, uh, macaques, gorillas, uh, they emit a very pungent and sometimes to some people a very awful smell. Um, If you're used to it, it's not something that necessarily bothers you, but uh, people that aren't used to it find it, uh, um, they don't like it. So they do have scent glands and they use those scent glands uh when chimpanzees and when gorillas get angry um they exude those uh, hormones uh and the scent permeates the air and it will tell the it alerts the um the aggressor's victim that um they have a situ situ, situ situation, excuse me. Situation occurring, and that will usually um, the victim then can respond to it either in an aggressive manner or um, be submissive. Most generally, it's a submissive posture because, like we've discussed before, primates are just like other animals; they don't really want to get into a um, battle situation because battle, you know, you get into a battle situation and animals are hurt and uh, torn up. There's no. They're they're probably going to go off someplace and die. And they're in usually uh, these tropical areas where a bacteria just thrives in abundance, and that's going to complicate the uh, injuries, and most generally will end up in death. Uh, I've I've seen macaques get a very simple um, bite or a cut and end up dead within a week because of the bacterial infection that has um, developed. And that's a sad situation. So they avoid uh, a lot of conflict in that regard. i um,
6: probably add to that, Forrest, that um, human beings, we, we do sweat, but we also produce oils for our skin. And bacteria do feed on that oil. Uh, and dead tissue on, on our skin, it's not usually a problem. Um, but hey. I belong to an Outward Bound Adventure Group, and we come back and we've gone into pubs, and people get up from tables sometimes, and move away from us.
2: Hey guys, let me <laughs> let me jump in here a second. Okay, that was a two part question for one thing, um, and Forrest is correct. You know they do probably sweat on as far as sweating into their fur here's a test i'm going to put to everybody um we know from you know historical reports you know john green noted it specifically in one of his books that out of i think it was seven or ten witnesses maybe only one would report a smell and i can tell you having stood in less than 20 feet from these creatures there was no smell so if they were sweating into their fur or if it was you know bacteria or whatever this would be more of a constant, but it's not so it strongly suggests it's scent glands rather than sweating into their fur yeah, yeah, yeah
4: I think agree. that's that's exactly correct because uh primates are the same way you don't uh the unfortunate thing is the primates that I've been in uh contact with have been in in captive situations so uh where they would probably smell more than uh, animals that were actually out in the wild. And, um, but it's, it's a known fact that they exude, uh, they do exude, uh, from their scent glands and, um, and of course, hormonal, uh, scents when, uh, they're, the females are in estrus. And so you've got, you know, combination factors, but, I, I hear that continually too, and then they say that in the aggressive when they're in aggressive states, uh, just like I told you about the chimpanzees and gorillas, then that's when you really smell them. That's and what, I think that's it's a natural reaction from the body to start uh, releasing these scents.
2: That's something I was going to ask you too. That's and that's something my belief is also from other information I've gotten is that during states of excitement is when they exude that smell, and, and also. Where typically on primates are those scent glands? Uh,
4: Under the arms and um, they're in the groin area and under the arms. And I do believe uh, they have, the chimpanzees have one in their um, their chest area as well. I haven't made a study on scent glands.
2: I'm sorry. (laughs) I, I was just curious. I mean, I... I wondered if they had anything in their, you know, in their arms or, you know, near their hands maybe for marking. Would they mark an area, let's say, with their scent?
4: Well, hmm. I've never seen any specific, even in uh, videos and such, of them marking uh, areas. I would imagine that, uh, you know, urine... Uh, placing urine in specific areas would be a uh, way of marking as well, and uh, males do do that. They will back up and spray trees, and uh, um, I think that's why they react When a lot of times when you've got these researchers that go out, and then they talk about that they urinated on a tree, and then it uh, gets the male Bigfoot in that area upset because they they view that as us marking our territory
2: right and we have that and like maybe in the case, marking
4: their territory <laughs> right like
2: in the case of carol we've had on a couple times um the creatures there would actually be able to locate her because they would urinate on the door handle and the door of the car she was driving
6: oh my uh, could i throw something in there well yeah yeah, I saw a study saying that, uh, and this could pertain to uh, young men courting women, humans as well, that uh, w- when men sweat, there's a certain um, element in our sweat that uh, uh, affect certain um, senses in a woman's nasal capacity. It's that,
4: pheromones.
6: Um, yeah, that will... Uh, Possibly induce uh, a more appealing. They find that appealing for some reason. I would assume the natural flow of things. Um, so
3: uh, we, in a lesser sense, do that as well.
4: Yeah, all uh, my hang on, hang on,
3: Ron,
5: you're,
3: you're telling all the young guys out there they don't need to use uh, deodorant <laughs> when they go out on a date. Well, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but
6: oh, please don't. Yeah, I did see a study. That basically said that, that there are certain sensors in a woman's nasal passages that are sensitive to
2: pheromones put off by a a male's sweat. Back to the days when men drenched themselves in cologne.
3: (laughs) (laughs) If I'd only known that years ago. (laughs) All right, I'm going to, okay, we're going to move on here. Uh, good, Good time to do that. This is from from Fred Sieber, and he's a uh, school teacher in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Okinawa, and Fred, your students have excellent questions, so these, these are three very good ones. Question number one, and I'm going to uh, start with Will on this, uh, does anyone know the population of Sasquatch in North America? Two, what area in North America has the largest population of Sasquatch and then number three does anyone have an estimate on the population of Sasquatch like creatures worldwide
2: those oh, good questions the first one now I'm going on what I was told through my sources um, not a specific number but the figure was six figures for the continent of North America <clears throat> I don't know if that's low-end high-end or where that was all I was given um, and what was the second question, Tom?
3: Okay, so the second one is, what area in North America, <clears throat> excuse me, in North oh. America, has the largest population?
2: You know, there are people, especially in Facebook, who like to make these maps and put them out there. You know, and some claim that, you know, the eastern part of the U.S. or the southeastern part of the U.S. <clears throat> but I would assume, you know, based on information I get. You know there are creatures all over the place but when you know settlers came into North America they moved west and a lot of a lot of things moved west with that expansion uh, and, and it looks like these creatures did as well so the northwest up through Alaska would probably have the largest population although there do seem to be plenty elsewhere and okay. w- and worldwide and, there's-
6: yeah I, I, I saw uh, density maps Indicating the majority are uh, uh, through the Rocky Mountain Range, West Coast area, and uh, Appalachian uh, area down through the eastern uh, U.S. And uh, lesser amounts, not saying that they're very, very few, but um, uh, lesser amounts um, in, in through the central part of the continent because that's Plains, open area.
2: But you know, that's an indicator these people really don't know what they're talking about because we get lots of reports from those locations, and there's a lot more creatures there than people would assume, especially Arizona.
6: Yeah, well, I didn't say that there are none.
2: Yeah, I don't know, but the numbers are higher than people think. So without a comprehensive study, there's no way of really knowing a lot of it's speculation.
6: Yeah, and up here in Canada... The majority of our population is along the U.S. border. Right. For the, so there are the a great, lot great of, there. of There's a lot of uninhabited area up here in Canada. Now, I, I've talked to people about uh the possibility of finding one of these things i've gotten very heated discussions with my son's grandmother's husband about this and you know he thinks that t- technology should have found something by now if they did exist and, and i i know that technology isn't a cure-all for everything uh it takes millions of dollars to for a satellite to say to to look at something and and why are they going to spend that money for something that doesn't to, in their opinion exists right they wouldn't that doesn't do make it. sense and you no know, and uh, infrared um, goggles or whatever or cameras uh, if they're any, like any other animal that I've uh, seen, they've now learned that they're sensitive to infrared light so they'll probably see infrared light just as well as, as a deer or a raccoon or any other animal.
3: No it's a real good point and i i would we get that same argument all the time um I, i i got a family member who who argues that and i'm like well okay so you're arguing you're trying to prove a negative for for starters say they don't exist and you have no evidence other than opinion and you know circumstantial evidence but actually technology has found these things and they have been photographed and and um, just because – yeah, I would say that just because academia hasn't lobbed onto this and published something doesn't mean that they don't exist because they, they certainly yeah, – I, I think and, so
6: that that's the big uh, uh, tripping point is that people rely is. too much on academia to accept what could possibly be. I know that the first – um, that saw a platypus. He 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 tried cutting it apart to find stitching. Yeah, because he couldn't. Uh, his brain point. could not uh, comprehend what
3: he, his eyes were showing him. Right, right. Very good point, Forrest. What are your thoughts on this?
4: On the population of Bigfoot?
3: Well, no. On the um, the fact that. People one of the one of the arguments is that they don't exist because they haven't been properly documented or discovered using technology, and I, I think that's not true. That they have, and also just like Moran said, uh, the big tripping point is the fact that academia hasn't globbed onto this and come out and said yes, they exist.
4: Well, I. I don't even understand academia anymore, um, to be honest with you. There have been plenty of photographs, movies. I mean, the Patterson film, they say, next to the Supruder film, has been the most analyzed film in history, and they've never been able to disprove it, Um, but nobody will accept it as a complete fact. There are a few anthropologists out there that will stick their neck out. Jeff Meldrum is one, um, and you can't help but just applaud them for that, in fact, because uh, he stuck his neck out, and he studied uh, you know, I think his specific uh, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his specific field is uh, uh, motion, and, uh, and the footprints that he has has uh, he has traced the movement of one particular Bigfoot, if I remember correctly, uh, throughout Washington and possibly into Canada, if I remember correctly on that one. Um, Mm. But I mean, there's academia that actually believe in this, but the ones that that do are just absolutely uh, ridiculed by others. And I, I don't understand it. I mean, it's beyond my comprehension why they They want to be that way. Why can they not accept that there is a primate out there other than man that's bipedal? And, you know, you and I talked about that one that they found in Tanzania, that uh, they're now thinking that bipedalism actually developed a lot sooner than what uh, uh, we've always thought, you know, and um, several million years earlier. But you sure don't see that particular article Displayed in uh, uh, schools and and all over the internet, you know. Uh, I had um, to, I mean, I had to hunt to find it, and for, I try to keep up on my reading.
0: Of I, uh,
6: I, I I think I think I can comment on that. Uh, I saw a, uh, a report on two chaps that they they, they forwarded a, a um, bogus study on something. And to the upper uh, echelons of the academic uh, system. And at every step, uh, it was uh, forwarded, accepted, and forwarded right up to the top chain of that system. And they, they, when it got to the very top, they said, hold it, guys. All this is bogus. So kind of demonstrating that uh, that academic system was – um not interested in discovery but it's just a system of acceptance in
3: that field uh, and they, I, I actually um, saw that it was, it was poking holes in the peer review system which yeah the peer review system is is critical it's very important but actually it's uh, they were just pointing out how stagnant that yeah. like you said that system has become over time and uh, it's just, you know you're you're supporting what already exists, um, and and so people are very dogmatic. Very quick. We're going to move on yeah. to the next question here, but very quick. The response that I have, and I've talked to Will about this, when people say, "Well, they don't exist," is, "Well, what are you doing tonight?" Because I know where they are. Yeah. I can take you there, and you'll have a different uh, outlook uh, after we after we get back. So, all right, um, real quick, Will, um, 10 seconds, well, as long as you want, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Does anyone have an estimate, this is back to Fred, his class, does anybody have an estimate on the population of Sasquatch-like creatures worldwide? No idea. (laughs) Okay, very good. Um, and, and, And agreed, you know, we can only... We have a lot of good information, obviously, from the United States and from Canada. And you know, Australia. North America. Aust- and you took the words out of my mouth. Australia, yes. Um, I will say this, talking about Canada real quick. If In order to do population estimates, you need two things. You need a CITER and a citee. So Canada is probably the least popular human population has the lowest population density in in the world know <clears throat> yeah. would you agree with that Moran?
6: yeah we've got the second largest mm-hmm. landmass uh, on the planet other than Russia and um, by population it, it were it, it isn't even worth talking about because the northern there's there's Inuit and Indian uh, communities up through the upper part of Um, northern Canada but in their very uh, isolated areas Uh, so there's a a lot and people have a real hard time uh, conceptualizing the the huge vastness of the North American continent it's a really hard thing to wrap your brain around when you start looking at I mean Nova Scotia here is a very small province but if you uh, drive up like uh, on our highway, 103 from uh, where I'm at, Lunenburg County to Halifax, and you look either side of the road um, and then compare that to like a a province like Quebec or Saskatchewan or Alberta. The landmass is so many more times vast. So why wouldn't uh, something be in there that we have not seen? I kind of uh, um, attribute that to a very narrow uh, um, um, thought process. Yeah, exactly. Being able to conceptualize
3: that. Uh, well, and one I got to say, I, Canada is stunningly beautiful. <clears throat> Excuse me. It just got that, that uh, low population density. Just there's no place in the world like it.
6: But uh, there's one
3: point Forrest
6: made um, about... Um, um, bipedalism now being uh seen like millions of years before i was just reading an article i think i'm going to mention it the will before they've discovered a creature called uh, denuvius uh, gorgonopsy uh, which was actually discovered in clay layers in bavaria germany uh indicating um a density of primates that had and, and they, they sh- their their skeletal remains show a bipedal adaptation which indicates that bipedalism was and, and this is at 12 million years many millions of years before uh the the, the oldest um hominin other than that uh, up to that time Discovered So the uh, bipedalism is exceptionally old and uh, in Europe. So they're not even sure where where bipedalism started, Europe, Asia, Africa. Um, so uh, what my thinking is that uh, uh, the landmass uh, up in Alaska, land bridge may have formed many times. Why not a diversion uh, of population? in either direction and these things may be a descendant species from them so it's it's just a thought i'm not saying it's what is possibly a possible scenario it's just a thought process i'm going through there's no indicative um uh, archaeological uh, remains to show that but it's just an uh, uh, assumption on my part
3: yeah, no, it's a, it's a, that's a real good point. And I will say, as far as bipedalism goes, um, I've worked in the past. I've had a couple of bosses that I swear walked around scratching their armpits and dragging their knuckles on the ground. So <laughs> you never know. <laughs> there could still be some out there, uh, some some uh, latent.
2: Uh, anyway. I, I'd thought about it for a long time and I asked Renee DeHinden repeatedly about the behavior and, and it just didn't make sense to me, you know, knowing that area pretty well and, and going to that location, um, from the direction that Patterson and Gimlin were coming and people say, I, I my question was, well, why didn't the Sasquatch leave? It would have obviously heard the horses coming. Uh, and people say things like, well, it's by a Creek. It would be noisy, yada, yada, yada. That's not true at all. If anybody's been to that part of Northern California in October, uh they would know that the film site is the creek the overall creek is about 13 miles long from the headwaters to the mouth and the klamath river and the film site's about seven miles from the mouth up to where the film site is and it's not a not a big creek and in, in the part when it, you get down by the uh, klamath it's a decent sized creek there but uh you get up that far uh upstream and especially by late October, that area gets really hot throughout the summer and most of the water sources get pretty scarce and where the film site is, there's not much water. So there wouldn't be a lot of noise from it. And, and it certainly would have heard the horses coming. So my question was, uh, again, having heard the horses coming why didn't it simply move off into the brush it waited there in the open it could have turned to its left disappeared in a matter of a couple seconds my second sighting was just like that and the creature didn't hear my car because it was coming around a corner and um, the Washougal River at that location is fairly noisy so it probably did not hear the car when it did see it took two steps and was gone um, yeah,
6: that always always bothered me because like I got a book through a book club in, when I was in elementary school, and saw the head up in the corner uh, flip, every page had a little picture of Patty, and, and movement as you flipped them through, and something about that always bothered me. Why is she walking down the whole uh, bed of the river when she could have, like you said, just taken an immediate left and disappeared in a couple of seconds up through the bush?
2: Yeah. So it did, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't make any sense. And then when it walked away and it wasn't in any particular hurry, it turned back to look as if to make sure they were still there. Very odd. So, and the fact that there was, and, and it was more after I talked to Bob Gimlin, uh, and I don't remember what conversation, but we, we had a number of phone conversations and I asked him, I said, well, you know, why didn't you guys follow the creature? And he was very quick in his response he said because we didn't know where the other two were and everybody seems to gloss over the fact that there were actually three creatures there now that the other two were not seen that day but when the loggers first found the tracks in august there were three sets of them and the patterson uh sasquatch was actually the smallest of the three prints so the question and and these guys knew because they talked out uh, our earliest Patterson had talked to Al Hodgson who was the connecting piece in that whole area you know whenever something happened they would inevitably people would go to Willow Creek and talk to Al Hodgson because he ran the five and dime store owned it and when somebody had something to say they saw something Al would be the guy they'd tell so he's the one that got green and Hinden down there Uh, the tracks weren't really much when they got there because it rained So, but they knew there were three sets and when Green and Hendon left, Al called uh, Patterson's house, talked to Mrs. Patterson because Patterson and Gimlin were in the uh, Mount St. Helens area. So when they came back and there were construction workers or in between jobs, so they put all their stuff together and raced down there to see what they could get. And they were there three weeks and uh, I mean, it just, it didn't, it didn't add up. Uh, you know, some of the explanations that people have tried to give them. So I thought to myself, knowing the behavior of these creatures most often is that I, I would bet it was trying to lure them into an ambush where the other two were located. In fact, um, Bob Titmus actually went there 10 days later after the, the filming and he followed the tracks and the creature didn't go that far when it went out of sight. It went up on a knoll that was covered with brush and had a good vantage point and watched them apparently for some time so it just all the indicators to me and and i go back to my military training (laughs) and it's the kind of thing i would have done if i were going to ambush somebody
6: yeah and uh, all these reports i hear people going missing no noise and missing in seconds um and these things are um probably like a cougar ambush predators. They can snap your neck, um, and it's all over. No noise. Right. Quick. No, no big fight. No noise. Um, I work with wood, so I know the, uh, and I've seen some of the um, tree breaks online that uh, people have been putting posting. Right. And uh, the twisting force on a four-inch, three-four-inch tree was probably in around. 800 to 1,000 pounds to, to twist it if it's new growth. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so
6: you're talking about something with the strength of a small excavator.
2: Yeah, we, I we've we often wondered that. I mean, I'm, I'm actually the first one who found those breaks and, and mm-hmm. identified mm-hmm. what they were back in, in 1991. And it's incredible when you see that. You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere, uh, not anywhere near where people are, and uh, depending we, on on depending on the species of wood, right?
6: Um,
2: yeah, because sometimes some they break, sometimes have, they twist them.
6: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, hardwoods, um, hardwoods going to have a a greater uh, shearing force, twisting force than softwood, right? Um, and that will go up exponentially as the tree gets thicker, mm-hmm. of course. About a three to four inch tree would probably have a shearing force like that of about eight hundred to a thousand pounds to twist it to that um, degree. Right. What I've seen. Right. Um, I work with keels and stuff, so I know what a thousand pounds is. Oh. And I've seen the um, strength would. Wood is uh, the strongest material you can get other than steel, um, but it's much. It can be, you know, much lighter with um, comparative strength uh, comparisons. Yeah, you're talking around 800 so for a three to four inch tree diameter uh, shearing force, twisting force. You're talking around 800 to 1,000 pounds.
3: Are you talking about the breaking strength, the, the PSI, or? Uh,
6: as you, like, um, the fibers of the wood twisting takes a greater amount of force than, a, than let's say, a shearing force or, or just bending over, snapping it. So, yeah, twist those fibers. takes takes an, an accepting greater uh, shearing force to do that then you otherwise would just snap it over Uh, and the two combined um but the the the, just the twisting force alone to to if we were talking about hardwood uh it's i i would give a good estimate uh between eight and a thousand pounds to do that to have that a three to four inch uh tree to, to twist that that, that takes an incredible amount of force for yeah, that st- Yeah. So you're talking... Well,
3: we've- <clears throat> no, I'm, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say that's a question that Will and I have had for a long time is we'd love to get a uh, mechanical engineer or somebody because uh, I know they have equipment out there for testing the breaking strength of various materials so like a, maybe a raw materials engineer where you yeah. snap and uh, you know you got a you, know, you got a digital or analog meter that tells you what the uh, force involved was. Um, well, I, I do a lot of work on marine vessels, so I'll, I'll get. A I good, know you do rough
6: estimate of um, those kinds of forces. I'm not right. Uh, uh, it would take a mechanical engineer to do uh, um, derive a specific force. Yeah. Um, but we're talking about a creature that's twice the size of a African lowland gorilla with probably more of the strength. And you're talking Hi, about this something. Okay,
4: If you're a friend or acquaintance, please leave your <laughs> name and number at the sound of the tone. And I'm I'll be happy explain. to call you back just as soon as I'm available. We lost to to get her.
3: Yeah, we
6: lost
2: Apparently, you went to her, her voicemail. You and I
4: am alive and well, and I don't need funeral arrangements. <laughs> I also don't need any insurance. I have all the insurance I need. And I'm getting tired of having to tell y'all no or ha- having to this hang is up golden. on you. So I'm giving you the option. You can just hang up now. Thank you, and you have a happy horsey day. Bye bye. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I guess it just didn't go through. <laughs> uh,
6: okay, well uh, to finish my thought, yeah, you're gonna you're you're looking at something with the the, the uh power of a, a small excavator. If yeah. you've seen them in people's yards. Oh yeah. Um absolutely. so to grab a human's head and twist it around, forget it. Not even worth yeah. talking about.
3: Yeah, it's a jump change, absolutely. Well, listen, um, I think we've uh, kind of come to the end here. We've answered a lot of good questions. And, Moran, I can't thank you enough. Uh, very special guest. We really, uh, it's a treat having you on, and we really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day to uh, to be one of our guests. And, and for thank us you. as well, but you lost her.
2: Thanks, Moran. We appreciate it. And uh, folks, we're out okay. of time. Stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot History, near Yakima, Washington, summer 1966, Roger Patterson talked to a youth who claimed to have been chased by a white ape. He said that a group of fruit pickers were playing hide-and-seek at night, and others went home while he was hidden. Returning, he heard something in a tree and thought it was one of his friends, but instead a white ape climbed down, he ran, and it chased him. According to Roger, who said he had checked with the hospital, the youth was found by his friends lying on the ground, clutching at some white hair and was hospitalized for treatment for shock.
1: Welcome. This is a collection of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Wailaki Campground, 2. Klamath, California, 3. Little River State Beach, 4. Lucerne Valley, 5. Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base, and 6. A Scary Experience in Northern California. Story number one. Wailaki Campground, King Range, California. Strange sounds, Bigfoot, occurred in California the evening of September thirteenth, two 2001. Humboldt County, California, September fourteenth, two 2001. Last night, my girlfriend and I were camping in King Range, northwest coast of California, at the Wilaki Campground with only one other set of campers. We heard a very distinct thumping sound of heavy footsteps in the area about 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. The next day, on the way home, we spoke about it. We both immediately concluded it had to be something capable of heavy footsteps. Having both experienced multiple bear encounters, we could easily rule out a big bear or other similar four-legged beasts. As a result of the experience, we both very quickly shifted from Bigfoot skeptics to interested parties. Having read some information on the web, It seems a possible hearing of Bigfoot is uninteresting, given all the sightings. Nevertheless, I felt confident enough that these unexplained sounds may in fact be valid, and therefore felt compelled to share them. The sounds were roughly one and a half seconds apart, and were quite heavy, much more than a human could be. We both got a good listen, given that we were in our sleeping bags, ears near to the ground at the time, we both independently thought footsteps must belong to that of a sizable creature. If I had to guess, I would say that the weight would be around five hundred pounds and possibly more. The direction was unclear, however. I suspect the distance was within one hundred feet, and probably were forty to fifty feet at the closest point. I did exit the tent briefly to relieve myself at a nearby tree during this time. The sounds came to an immediate halt. I could not see anything with my headlamp. I might have contacted the nearby campers regarding the incident, however, they had left earlier that morning. Although I was able to find plenty of information in terms of what Bigfoot looks like, I was unable to find information regarding walking sounds to confirm my suspicions. Any information provided would be welcomed. Also, if you think we could have heard something else, please offer an explanation. I am seeking to explain the incident. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Klamath, California, September 25th through the 29th, 1992. The Triplicate Newspaper by Steve Selke. Daryl Owens' 8-year-old son and his 12-year-old friend were out looking for snakes on September 12th, when, at about 11.30 a.m., they heard branches rustling and smelled a strong odor. The smell was like rotted chicken. It was awful. When we looked up, we saw the big hairy man standing there, about 100 feet away. He was covered with thick, dark brown hair and was shaking a branch in his hand. We could see his face real good. My friend and I looked at him for about five seconds before we turned and ran all the way back home. As the boys turned to head for home, they saw the creature turn and walk into the brush. After questioning the boys, Darrell Owen went back out to check the area. As I headed out there, the phrase the boys used to describe what they had seen kept echoing over and over in my head. The big hairy man. Not Bigfoot, not Sasquatch, not even Harry from the movie. Nope, they kept calling it the Big Hairy Man. Looking back on it now, I guess that should have been my first clue there was something very unusual about their story. Sure, it was wild, but somehow it just didn't have a false ring to it. And as for the kids themselves, well, there was no faking what they were feeling. They were scared to death. When I got to the spot where the boys said they had seen the big hairy man standing, my life was changed forever. As I went out to the creek bed, I figured I'd find bear tracks or nothing at all, in which case I would then know that the boys were lying about what they had claimed to see. Instead, I looked down and saw these huge footprints in the ground. I just froze. I came back on Tuesday to make a casting because when I first saw these tracks I sort of freaked out. I could clearly hear something crunching through the thick brush going up the steep hillside. And when I heard that and looked down at the tracks heading in that direction, all I wanted to do then was get the heck out of there. 16 inches long, 8 inches wide. The cast measures 16 inches long, eight and a half inches wide at the toes, and five inches at the heel. Owen counted thirty-four footprints, with an average stride of fifty-six inches. Scott Harriet, Los Angeles, arrived in Klamath, and the men spent three days examining the scene. A few strands of brown hair were found. And then there are the screams. The screams began the night after the boys' sighting. These... Screeches have echoed across the canyon behind our home almost every night since, and there is more than one of them because you can hear a call and then an answer from another hilltop. The screams usually occur between 9 o'clock and 10 p.m. John Green, speaking to reporter Selkie from his home in Canada, said, Keep in mind, Bluff Creek is only about 25 miles due east of Klamath, but it is another world in environmental habitat terms. I don't know, but perhaps the drought has motivated them to travel westward toward the cooler coastline, like other wildlife has done recently. Darrell Owen reported sighting the creature, which looked directly at him from behind some bushes. It had deep-set eyes and large, close-together nostrils, and its face was dark burnt orange in color. The hair was long enough to flow as it turned its head. Scott Harriet returned to Klamath last week, October twelfth, and hiked the area with Darrell. Both were armed with camcorders. Scott likens the heavy underbrush to jungles in Vietnam, and says the visibility even at midday is poor. Nevertheless, the men found themselves looking at something with red glowing eyes. The eyes glowed red twice, like the voltage was turned up and then down. The screams have continued nightly, and after the triplicate reported Steve Selkie became involved in the Sasquatch research, a friend of his said he was near Davis Lake in Oregon when he heard the screams for 20 minutes. This ends story number two. Story number three. Little River State Beach, Humboldt County, Northern California. Two summers ago, the wife and I were camped along the Little River State Beach just north of McKinneyville, California. I have been retired for five years now. My age is seventy. We had been there with family and some friends, and had just finished surf fishing along about dusk, I believe it was. Four of us were sitting around the picnic table, relaxing, talking, Sarah brought to my attention a man strolling at a pretty good clip from the direction of the highway towards the ocean. I nudged my brother-in-law and said, Hey, Everett, look at that blankety-blank guy, naked as a blankety-blank jaybird. We all turned to look. This guy was huge, covered with hair, or in a costume, don't know which, and really moving out about thirty feet away from us. "'We all agreed he must have been about seven feet tall or better. "'Must have weighed better than six hundred pounds, "'because me and Everett's combined weight is five hundred "'and this guy was much bigger than two of us put together. "'The wife noted that he was a candidate for an ugly contest, "'looking much like a blankety-blank ape, if you know what I mean. "'He was a hell-bent on getting somewhere fast, "'and the only place in front of him was the Blue Pacific.' Sure enough, we watched him charge out into the ocean and disappear into the darkening waters. We took a high-beam flashlight and went to take a look. The tracks in the sand must have been two of my feet long and some wider, so as we know we weren't seeing things. If that don't beat all the blankety-blank experiences I had in my life, I don't know what to do. My son in law found your website on his computer. We have read the ancient mysteries narration and think we seen a Bigfoot by chance. We was too stupid to be afraid at the time, but after reading your web page, don't think we'll ever be doing any fishing in California no more. We think the blankety blank bastard may have drowned himself. F. L. Monroe, Jackson, Mississippi. That's the end of the Little River State Beach. Story number four. Lucerne Valley, San Bernardino County. This email was originally called 1988 Cement Monster, thanks to Doug and also to Peter Gutier. I really liked your page on the Desert Bigfoot. I used to be stationed at 29 Palms from 86 to 89. I spent a lot of time in the Joshua Tree Monument. Never saw anything of real interest, if you know what I mean. Where I did see something was with my marine buddy, Mike, in the spring, March of 1988, after leaving Big Bear Lake. We'd been snow skiing all day at Big Bear. Now, as you probably know, the quickest way to get back to 29 Palms is to take the shortcut route through the desert. I believe it goes through, or very near, Apple Valley. It eventually comes in the back way to Yucca Valley after passing through Landers. Yes, I know you know the right highway. Okay, here goes one of the coolest things that I ever saw during the 1980s. Mike and I had just left Big Bear. It was about 9 o'clock p.m. We were completely down from the mountain and just entering the desert, still kind of going downhill. On the right-hand side of the road, there is a cement factory, sort of all by itself. "'There isn't any civilization around "'for about ten miles or so, "'which isn't uncommon for the Mojave Desert. "'Mike was driving. "'I believe I saw it first. "'From the left side of the road, "'something very large seemed to stand up on two legs "'and run across the road. "'The bottom half looked human, covered with hair. "'The top half wasn't very visible, "'but appeared monsterish, scary, in other words. "'The headlights only got the bottom half, and the damn thing ran out about 150 feet in front of us. It made it across the road in three strides. I distinctively remember seeing the arms pumping back and forth, just like any of us would do sprinting across the road in front of a car. It appeared to be eight feet tall. Now for the interesting part. I didn't say anything. I just kind of glanced over at Mike. He just kind of glanced back at me, Then we both looked right at each other. What the hell was that, I said. That was the cement monster. After him! Mike slammed on the brakes and turned around. I started digging through the glove box looking for his wife's pistol. I said, go down that dirt road. Still looking for the pistol. About 300 feet down the dirt road was an old cement factory, but no sign of the thing that ran out in front of us. So we drove around a little bit, but didn't see it. We just accepted that we had simply seen some sort of a prehistoric man, and that was that. And it was no big deal, and maybe someday we might be privileged enough to see another. That's the end of reading number four. Story number five. The Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base. From the files of the late Bobby Ann Slate, Bigfoot Investigator. It was a routine night at the Edwards Air Force Base, air security police desk until the frantic call came in from the patrol on duty at the restricted site known as Project Logic. The man's voice was urgent and high-pitched with fear. Send a patrol, quick! There's this huge form coming toward me. Hurry! His voice trailed off and the sounds of gunshots could be heard through the receiver. Then there was nothing but an ominous silence. When the patrol arrived, The guard was found in a dazed, incoherent state after having fired the full magazine in his gun. The Office of Special Investigation, OSI, was called in. According to one military source, the patrol vehicle was found overturned, the patrolman's rifle snapped in two, and huge, five-toed, bare, human-like footprints crisscrossed the site. The patrolman had not been injured, but was terrified. While no official report of this incident can be found in the archives of the base's historical department, the rumor circulated throughout the Air Force Police that the man at Project Logic was deeply affected by his encounter that night. They said he was placed in a military hospital and eventually sent to an overseas base. In the spring of 1974, Edwards Air Force Base security policeman, Sergeant Michael House, Was on night patrol on the outskirts of the powerful communication site known as Mars Station, which maintains radio contact with other military installations around the globe. A nearby microwave tower, looming like a lonely sentinel in the darkness, stood surrounded by a wooden fence posted with signs advising that explosive devices, electrically operated or magnetically charged, would detonate within a certain radius. Sergeant House was patrolling in the area of the abandoned sled track once used for testing G-forces when he saw it. I'd gotten a new spotlight and was trying it out, the sergeant said. Heading back to the main base, I noticed maybe 200 to 300 yards to my left, these large blue eyes. I do a lot of night hunting, and it was strange. They were larger than anything I'd ever seen before. "'Their diameter had to be about four inches apart "'and seven feet off the ground. "'I stopped the truck and sat there watching them. "'It was too dark to see any body shape to the thing, "'but the blue glows proceeded towards my truck "'at right angle for about one hundred yards and then stopped. "'The hair bristled on the back of the patrolman's neck "'as the larger-than-human eyes began circling "'and again moving closer to his vehicle.' a rank smell like something rotten permeated the air. The thing moved closer again, now coming to within fifty yards of the truck, but still its shape could not be discerned through the brush in the desert. Just at that moment the truck radio advised Sergeant House that he should proceed directly back to the main base, and he quickly left the area. He returned three hours later, but there was no trace of the blue eyes. Rain "'washed out the possibility of locating any tracks the following day. "'The movement of the eyes was extremely fast,' Sergeant House recalled. "'Another thing that bothered me was that they didn't bob up and down. "'It was like two lights on a wire moving from one point to another. "'He was ribbed a good deal while making out his official report on the incident.' which was to set the standard of non-reporting from uh, other patrols that encountered strange things in subsequent months. The commanding officer wanted to believe that his men were simply overly imaginative. After all, the desert could produce some eerie effects at night, and then, too, reports of fantastic creatures in and around restricted areas didn't look good in the official log. "'You're only hearing the wind,' he told the men "'staffing the Mars station on the midnight shift, "'who said that they'd been hearing some unusual sounds, "'as well as seeing the dark figure form of something "'walk past a building, "'a figure which would have to be almost eight feet tall "'to be seen through the high windows, "'something which stepped on and pulverized "'a glass soda-pop bottle in its path. "'In several instances calls to the air police,' about creatures moving in the desert did turn out to be wild burrows moving silently through the sage at night, and that while their eyes are blue, there is almost no reflection due to limited pigmentation. If there were official investigations by the OSI, the men on patrol seldom heard the outcome unless there was some natural explanation. Thus, they wondered about the rumor circulating that The three men on duty at a complex near the bombing range had called in for help. As the story went, when the patrol arrived, they found the security guards unconscious. The door leading into the building was ripped off its hinges, and the sophisticated electronic equipment within had been demolished. Just a tale? It was told to an air policeman by a member of the patrol investigating that call for help. The Rocket Propulsion Lab lies on the eastern edge of Edwards Air Force Base and utilizes a vast area of the facility. It contains installations ranging from gigantic multi-million pound thrust rocket stands to smaller, highly specialized test equipment which can capture and instantaneously analyze the exhaust gas produced by a rocket engine. It is here that rockets and similar hardware are tested for the study of propulsion equipment under conditions of long-term exposure to the environment. It is also here that weapon systems are developed and tested. Certain areas are off-limits to civilians, and signs warned to keep out of the potentially toxic areas. Air Police Sergeant Barton had an open mind about creatures. His relatives in Missouri had seen and shot at the mammoth Bigfoot-like monster known as Momo, and... Though he trusted their accounts of the incident, he also realized the doubt and ridicule they were subjected to when they talked about it. As a result, no formal report was made to the air security police concerning what happened in the winter of 1974, while Barton was on patrol in the vicinity of the rocket propulsion laboratory and the strange blue lights he saw in the nearby mountains. Assuming the lights to be from a car, Barton drove toward them in order to intercept any unauthorized trespassers. The lights vanished when he arrived at the site where he had last seen them, but now he found his vehicle mired in the soft desert sand. Walking approximately two miles back to base, the sergeant intercepted a patrol and they radioed for a tow truck. When the truck arrived and everyone returned to the sergeant's vehicle, They found three-toed tracks measuring 14 inches long with what appeared to be a clawed digit at the heel. The wind was blowing soft sand and the footprints were filling in rapidly, making any precise identification difficult. But whatever it was had completely circled the truck as if inspecting it and then walked off on two legs into the desert. Three weeks later, and also on patrol, Air Patrol Sergeant Jones was parked in the region of the rocket site. It was close to midnight. The moon was up when suddenly Jones noticed a shape moving across the skyline of a nearby hill. While he couldn't estimate its height, the trunk area or girth was described as immense. The sergeant quickly grabbed his radio microphone and called HQ. Tell the replacement to hurry up. I might need some help, he urged. AS JONES LOOKED BACK AGAIN TO THE HILL, TWO LARGE LUMINESCENT GREEN-BLUE ORBS, LIKE EYES, WERE MOVING TOWARD HIM. THEY DIDN'T REALLY SEEM TO ME LIKE THEY WERE BOUNCING THE WAY A PERSONS WOULD WHEN WALKING, HE SAID. THEY KIND OF FLOATED OR WERE MOVING ON AN EASY GLIDE. CARLIGHTS APPEARED DOWN THE ROAD, AND THE PATROLMAN LOST NO TIME IN GETTING OUT OF HIS TRUCK AND WALKING TO MEET THE VEHICLE. At that moment he was extremely grateful that the men had responded so quickly to his call for help, but that wasn't actually so. The other vehicle had been ordered into the area in response to a report about strange lights being observed in the hills. Yet no unauthorized cars had been located, and now the glowing eyes had disappeared. All that remained in the vicinity were unusual marks on the ground. The two rounded depressions measured six inches and two inches in diameter, respectively. They were all over the place, Jones said. There were so many of them that I couldn't follow any trail. Barton, who had found tracks around his truck a few weeks earlier, said they were similar to what he had seen. The other man, along on patrol, didn't get out of the car. He said he didn't want anything to do with it. Can anybody blame him? That's the end of story number five. Story number six. A scary experience in Northern California, 2004. I would like to share an experience we had last month in Northern California. My brother Zachary and I went to do a little gold panning in the rivers and creeks that encircle the Marble Mountain wilderness. We know that there has been extensive dredging activity there along the Salmon and Klamath rivers, and some of the surrounding tributaries. We are not looking to get rich. Just the sight of a little color in our pans is a great feeling. I'm kind of guessing at the exact area, but we had started our run from the south in the hamlet of Etna. We proceeded to encircle the Marble Mountain area, planning on going through Happy Camp and returning north to Oregon after hitting Highway 5 near Eureka, California. We were wading in the river just outside forks of salmon, looking for paydirt, when we heard a kind of scream coming from across the river. It was probably eighty yards wide. We thought it might be a bird or mountain lion, but felt safe on our side of the river. We were panning, anyway, and heard a splash, and looked up to see a big stick that had hit the water, and was floating downstream. It could not have fallen off a tree, as none overhung the water at the point of entry. We sat up and observed the other bank. A rock also came flying into the water, and while it was not nearly close enough to threaten our safety, it hit the water about halfway, and from the splash it was sizable. I'm guessing ten inches around. I don't know a human that could throw a rock that big that far. We decided we were not wanted there, even though it was public access. As we picked up our pans and gear to head back to the truck, we again heard more of the screams. This was about 10 a.m., and we stopped to eat a bit later, somewhere after Sum's Bar and before Clear Creek. We pulled into a camp area for lunch and met a couple of Native American gentlemen who were outfitted for fishing. We asked if they had ever fished where we had been panning, and they had. We related our experience, and they said, and quite matter-of-factly, that most likely it was Bigfoot who resented our presence. We had only seen some foliage moving, but even looking through binoculars could not see any hair or body that would identify our subject as an animal. Interesting to us not so much that we were run off by something, but that our Bigfoot suspicions were confirmed by locals to whom such an experience was seemingly so commonplace. We plan to return later in the year and will be armed with cameras and tape recorders. It was unnerving but exciting at the same time. I later learned that these local natives are not generally given to sharing lots of lore or information, but I guess we were visibly agitated by our morning. We will try to warm up to some of the locals and see if there might be any other areas where such events occur. Alfred Red Cody Wednesday, July seventh, two 2004 9.53 a.m. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This is the Ruby Creek story. Stories about the Sasquatch have been appearing in print from time to time since the 1860s, and I have clippings in my files from almost every year since the early 1920s. But the modern history of the Sasquatch really dates from September 1941, when one of these creatures paid a visit, in broad daylight, to an Indian family named Chapman. While the Amerindian stories have usually been dismissed as legend or laughed off because uh, they're not supposed to be reliable, this experience was accompanied by too much physical evidence to be ignored. The Chapman family consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman and children numbering, at my visit, four. Mr. Chapman worked on the railroad and was living at that time in a small place called Ruby Creek, thirty miles up the Fraser River from Agassiz, British Columbia, in Canada's great western province. It was about three in the afternoon of a sunny, cloudless day when Jeanie Chapman's eldest son, then, aged nine, came running to the house saying that there was a cow coming down out of the woods at the foot of the nearby mountain. The other kids, a boy aged seven and a little girl of five, "'were still playing in a field behind the house "'bordering on the rail-track. "'Miss Chapman went out to look. "'Since the boy seemed oddly disturbed, "'and they saw what at first she thought "'was a very big bear moving about among the bushes "'bordering on the field beyond the railway-tracks, "'she called the two children, "'who came running immediately. "'Then the creature moved on to the tracks, "'and she saw to her horror that it was a gigantic man covered with hair, not fur. The hair seemed to be about four inches long all over, and of a pale yellow-brown color. To pin down this color, Mrs. Chapman pointed out to me a sheet of lightly varnished plywood in the room where we were sitting. This was of a brown ochre color. This creature advanced directly towards the house, and Mrs. Chapman had, as she put it, "'much too much time to look at it, "'because she stood her ground outside "'while the eldest boy, on her instructions, "'got a blanket from the house "'and rounded up the other children. "'The kids were in a near panic,' she told us, "'and it took two or three minutes to get the blanket, "'during which time the creature had reached "'the near corner of the field "'only about one hundred feet away from her. "'Mrs. Chapman,' then spread the blanket and, holding it aloft so the kids could not see the creature, or it them, she backed off at the double, to the old field, and down onto the river beach out of sight, and then ran with the kids downstream to the village. I asked her a leading question about the blanket. Had her purpose in using it been to prevent her kids seeing the creature, in accordance with an alleged Amerindian belief that to do so brings bad luck and often death her reply was both prompt and surprising she said that although she had heard white men tell of that belief she had not heard it from her parents or any other of her people whose advice regarding the so-called sasquatch had been simply not to go further than certain points up certain valleys to run if she saw one and not to struggle if one caught her, as it might squeeze her to death by mistake. "'No,' she said. "'I used the blanket because I thought it was after one of the kids, and so might go into the house to look for them instead of following me. "'This seems to have been sound logic, as the creature did go into the house.' and also rummaged through an old outhouse pretty thoroughly, hauling from it a fifty-five-gallon barrel of salt fish, breaking this open and scattering its contents about outside. The irony of it is that all three children did die within three years. The two boys by drowning, and the little girl on a sickbed. And just after I interviewed the Chapmans, they also were drowned in the Fraser River when a rowboat capsized. Mrs. Chapman told me that the creature was about seven and a half feet tall. She could estimate its height by the various fence and line posts standing about the field. It had a rather small head and a very short, thick neck. In fact, really, no neck at all, a point that was emphasized by William Rowe and by all others who claimed to have seen one of these creatures. Its body was entirely human in shape except that It was immensely thick through its chest, and its arms were exceptionally long. She did not see the feet which were in the grass. Its shoulders were very wide, and it had no breasts from which Mrs. Chapman assumed it was a male, though she did not see any male genitalia due to the long hair covering its groin. She was most definite on one point. The naked parts of its face and its hands were much darker than its hair, and appeared to be almost black. George Mm -hmm. Chapman returned home from his work on the railroad that day shortly before six in the evening, and by a route that bypassed the village, so that he saw no one to tell him what had happened. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in, and— spotted enormous humanoid footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for he, like all of his people, had heard since childhood about the big wild men of the mountains, though he did not hear the word Sasquatch till after this incident. He called for his family, and then dashed through the house. Then he spotted the foot-tracks of his wife and kids going off toward the river. He followed these until... He picked them up on the sand beside the river and saw them going off downstream without any giant ones following. Somewhat relieved, he was retracing his steps when he stumbled across the giant's foot tracks on the river bank farther upstream. These had come down out of the potato patch which lay between the house and the river, had milled about by the river, and then gone back through the old field toward the foot of the mountains where they disappeared in the heavy growth. Returning to the house, relieved to know that the tracks of all four of his children and family had gone off downstream to the village, George Chapman went to examine the woodshed in our interview after eighteen years. He still expressed voluble astonishment that any living thing, even a seven foot six inch man with the barrel chest, could lift a fifty five gallon tub of fish and break it open without using a tool. He confirmed the creature's height after finding a number of long brown hairs stuck in the slabwood lintel of the doorway above the level of his head. George Chapman then went off to the village to look for his family and found them in a state of calm collapse. He gathered them up and invited his father-in-law and two others to return with him for protection of his family when he was away at work. The foot-tracks returned every night for a week, and on two occasions the dogs that the Chapmans had taken with them set up the most awful racket at exactly two o'clock in the morning. The Sasquatch did not, however, molest them, or apparently touch either the house or the woodshed. But the whole business was too unnerving, and the family finally moved out. They never went back. After a long chat about this and other matters, Mrs. Chapman suddenly told us something very significant, just as we were leaving. She said, It made an awful funny noise. I asked her if she could imitate this noise for me, but it was her husband who did so, saying that he had heard it at night twice during the week after the first incident. He then proceeded to utter exactly the same strange, gurgling whistle that the men in California— who said they had heard a Bigfoot call, had given us. This is a sound I cannot reproduce in print, but I can assure you that it is unlike anything I have ever heard given by man or beast anywhere in the world. To me this information is of greatest significance. That an Amerindian couple in British Columbia should give out with exactly the same strange sound in connection with a Sasquatch that two highly educated white men did over 600 miles south in connection with California's Bigfoot, is incredible. If this is all hoax, or a publicity stunt, or a mass hallucination, as some people have claimed, how does it happen that this noise, which defies description, always sounds the same no matter who has tried to reproduce it for me? These were probably the last words on the Sasquatch that the Chapmans uttered and I absolutely refuse to listen to anybody who might say that they were lying. Admittedly, honest men are such a rarity as possibly to be non-existent, but I have met a few who could qualify, and I put the Chapmans near the head of that list. This story was written by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine, March 1960. This concludes the reading
0: of Ruby Creek. Thank you for listening. Story from Orleans, California, 1952. This person's encounter was so shocking that he blocked it from consciousness for a time. He did recall the events, however, and this is what he related. I began to remember more and more of what happened. I had me a bad case of the jitters as the memory uncoiled. The first part of the story took me back to 1952, when I had gone to Orleans to start preliminary work on a logging operation with two men by the names of Lee Valeri and Josh Russell. One evening, Josh told me Lee had gone up to Happy Camp, but not having transportation back wanted me to take the Mercury and go up and get him. I had driven the extremely crooked and dangerous road up there, but not being able to find him started back alone to Orleans. It had been raining very heavily, and after going back a few miles, I found there had been a slide across the road. There was a man with a flashlight there who told me I could still go back to Orleans by way of a detour across the river. He said it was a dirt road that went through Bear Valley and could come out at the mouth of Bluff Creek a few miles below Orleans. I had been driving slowly down this road for about 20 miles, I guess, sort of daydreaming when I saw it. Dimly in the headlights and the rain, was a shaggy, orangutan-like apparition of a human. For an instant, I had the impression the shaggy hair of the creature was a hoary blue-gray in the headlights. An ogre, I remember thinking. But the thing swiftly backpedaled off the road and behind a tree. I automatically passed it off his imagination and drove on by the spot. Suddenly, without warning, the car went into a violent and unreasonable skid, I brought the car back under control, but for some reason glanced into the rearview mirror. In the dim light of the taillights and license display bulb, I thought I could see a savage-looking face looking through the rear glass. I continued on, and when I looked again, there was no face. So again concluded it was imagination. I had gone another quarter mile, I guess, when across the road was a small six-inch sapling. I stopped the car and got out. "'intending to drag it aside if possible. "'Suddenly I heard the swift thud of flying feet "'of something coming down the road. "'Reality was upon me, "'and I remember cursing myself for not paying attention "'to what I had previously seen. "'It was the shaggy human-like monster "'I had seen in the headlights. "'It at once started circling around me, "'snarling and acting very menacing. "'It kept this circling up for some time "'and once came up quite close, "'and I could see its face reflected by the headlights much better.' The eyes were round and rather luminous. The hair on top of its rather low and rounded head was pretty short. Its eye teeth were far longer than a human's. Also, the chest and upper part of its torso was rather bare of hair and also leathery looking. It wasn't too tall, not much more than my own five feet nine inches, although it had a stooped, long armed posture. Then suddenly it changed tactics. It would stalk off down the road, but would come charging back, like a bat out of hell, when I started toward the car. The hour was late. The thing was becoming more and more menacing, and I was almost paralyzed by this time, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly a plan of escape, born out of desperation, popped into my mind. Since the monster seemed to think I couldn't get away, why not, when it went down the road again, playing cat and mouse, try to get in the car and smash through the sapling? This I did and sprang for the door of the car a dozen feet away. No sooner was I inside when there it was, trying to claw through the window. I jerked the car into gear, floored the accelerator, and can vividly remember the wet sapling glistening whitely in the headlights as the car slashed it aside. I remember the scream of rage and frustration it then gave. It was a curious, trumpeting sound, like the scream of a stallion and the roar of a mad grizzly. The car then felt as though it were being held back by something half-riding and attempting to stop it, but the powerful mercury proved too much for it, and after a couple hundred yards, I felt no more resistance. To top this unbelievable experience off, believe it or not, I promptly forgot the whole experience. Then and there, it went out of my mind. Not even the next day, when Lee asked me if I had seen anything unusual on that road last night, did I remember... He had come later from happy camp with another man hired to take him to Orleans. A few days later, an incident happened that should have brought the experience back, but didn't. Lee noticed a big dent in the grill of the car and asked me how it got there. I told him I didn't know. Incidentally, Lee told me that something had tried to push them off the road when they came through on the detour. He said there's something strange going on around here and let the matter drop.